Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sorry You're In My Seat, a weekly podcast that unites two best friends on a quest to find the greatest movies of all time. I'm your host, Aaron, and each week I have the pleasure of talking movies and films with my best buddy, James. Hello there. And this week is no exception. We leave no stone unturned on the quest to find the greatest of all time. And this week we're looking at the small screen and the big screen on with some uh, latest releases. We're going to look at some classic movies, a really bad film, and we're going to look at Martin Scorsese's career, asking the question that every budding uh, film enthusiast asked themselves at what point at some point what's your favourite Martin Scorsese movie it's a, it's a horrible question to answer which we found out this week trying to bully it down to I've gone for a top three mm. because I'm I'm a slut for three I'm, I, there's one for me but there is certainly three top there are there's there's what I mean there's a, there's a mountain mm. we've got quite a lot of films you know there's quite a lot out there from Goodfellas to King of Comedy there is a great smorgasbord of films out there for you some of the best films you might have seen in the last decade as well there's, it's a, it's, a, it's it's high, mate. There's, it's high quality. There's the Robert De Niro stuff, and then mm. there's when he found Leonardo DiCaprio and then moved over to yeah. Leo. Um, and then, and then, and then so the Irishman come out, and I was like, no, I want them all back. Yeah. Oh, my God. Great I mean, filmography, great career. And, and I mean, if we had more time, we probably would have done the whole episode on Scorsese. But just as we sat down to record, I think collectively we've seen between us about nine movies that we want to bring to the table this week. So it is action-packed, jam uh, full of film talk. If you do like this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. You get a new episode each and every week. This week, we are going to talk about The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is new to Netflix. Um, I'm also going to talk about the movie Worth, starring uh, Michael Keaton. I'm going to talk about a new movie called Beckett that's on Netflix. Um, and I've also seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is the Yorgos Lanthimos movie starring oh. Colin Farrell. So I've got loads of films, James, what are you talking about? Well, I went to the cinema twice this week, so I saw Death on the Nile, big release this week. I saw The Duke, which is scheduled to come out next week. So by the time you hear this episode, you've seen it. And then I went trolling, mate. Went trolling because, you know, I like to see the very best of the very worst. So I checked out Naked on Netflix. And then I checked out The Fortress with everyone's favourite Bruce Willis. So we're going to start there because I think if you've downloaded an episode that's around Martin Scorsese and you've got big movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre out, why not start with Bruce Willis on his on his continual quest to not act in films? Mate, it's next level, this one. So you saw you thought you saw him phone it in in Ocean's 13. And, and, and loads of other films. You saw him not care in Apex. Well, get ready for a new level <laughs> of Not My Job with Bruce Willis. He plays Robert. He's a retired gentleman who lives out in the middle of, a, seriously, a rainforest. Mm. <laughs> what, what's, what's Robert like? Is Robert he... like, mate, you very, very bland. <laughs> very bald. Very bald. <laughs> very, if you, you're very calm, actually. I'm Angry and smirking. Kind of, yeah. But he doesn't look like he's got 50 million, but apparently he does. Because right. his son, Paul, played by Jesse Metcalf. <laughs> Welcome into this movie. <laughs> Welcome. He shows up and he's asking for his dad for a loan to save his crypto business we've, Ooh, all been, we've all been there must be new oh so I know that I've got you in with the story I'm just going to tell you now that maybe Emil Hirsch wrote it man and this is part one of a part three trilogy well this is good because it's three parts of a trilogy <laughs> no but <laughs> it's good I always thought that would be the, the, yeah the uh, the best thing to release a trilogy with only two movies in it yeah <laughs> um Actually, that would be pretty good because then people would be like trying to scrounge it. It'd be the most popular film never made. It's like, what did happen to part two? <laughs> right. So he goes there. He's asking for money. This retired community, there's not much going on because they couldn't afford any other actors. Retired, retired community, what we're we talking like urban setting? Is, are they living in the, in the woods? It's the middle of jungle, mate. And the woods, you know, is, is very out of the way. The guards are very quick to point their guns and they're supposed to be the best of the best. Sounds like a court, James. Mate, I'm just saying that Shannon Doherty's there playing a the general. She's in charge. Mm. Oh my God, Charles Spies, it all goes wrong. You'll never guess. You literally will have no idea who shows up. 
It's only Chad Michael Murray, who's been fucking MIA since Montreal. <laughs> turns out he's been building a drug kingpin empire, mate. And it turns out this retirement community is for actually US intelligence officers. So they've got a safe haven so they can protect their families by layers, mate. Made layers. You did not see this coming, especially Chad Michael Murray. You didn't see it coming, <laughs> to be honest. Right. So what turns out, he leads some mercenaries. They come in. Turns out the guards are actually pretty shit. And the fortress, the fortress is actually an underground area which is safe and secure for about 30 minutes and then they're fucked so it, it, it parallels very closely to the Christopher Lambert 80s oh, yes. movie Fortress with the underground prison it's not really right which was brutal it was brutal so what's to like about this film it's definitely not the writing mm. the, the characters are two dimensional um, except for Chad Michael Moore, I would say he having a lot of fun but I realised that's probably because he has no choice he needed to do this film. <laughs> <laughs> just like Jesse Metcalf he needed to do this now, Bruce Willis, mate, he might not care in other films, but he doesn't even care enough to move his body. <laughs> and what I mean by this is the first part of the film is they're trying to save Bruce Willis, but they don't need to save him because he's out there killing bad guys. But he's doing it from one location. He's in the woods, just stood there. A lot like Apex, when I said he's just stood there and they filmed him for an entire day and all they've done is rotate. They don't even bother rotating. He's quite clearly stood and said, stood in front of the same tree. He's only there for two days, I imagine, because the second day he said, I've stood up, I'm going to sit down now. <laughs> I love this. I, I want to get to the point where I see Bruce Willis so lazy, they have to CGI his mouth moving. Yes. Do you know what? This might be the film for you because he <laughs> barely, human emotions don't register on any sort of scale. I don't know. At one point, at one point he's supposed to be happy. And the only reason I know this is because the line is, you seem happy by that. But, but I didn't know that. <laughs> What they've done is they've told, not shown. And all he, all he had to do was smile. Bruce Willis is, the thing is, you can quite clearly see his motivation. In one scene, you can just see a packet of peanuts that the director's holding and wiggling in front of him and go, if you get through this day, you can have a dry roasted peanut. Bruce Willis is next level. I couldn't give a shit. It's not his job. I, I hope there's, if you had the subtitles, you could press it and it could tell you what Bruce Willis' men would be doing. <laughs> or, or, or like, if it ever came out on DVD, which you won't. <laughs> which, which never, there's there's a commentary where he's like when the director's like well what he should have said or what he should have done is this and then you've got Bruce Willis snoring in the background because I'll be honest Bruce Willis has achieved this imagine you're Chad Michael Moore you get to work with Bruce Willis you're Jesse Metcalf you know it's it's different mm. and by different I mean it's exactly the fucking same it was an opportunity to work with Bruce Willis and he doesn't care and I'm actually starting to be on his side. I have found the film that he cares the least amount in. Is it a bad film? Oh, God, yes. But is it worth watching it knowing that Bruce Willis is slowly... I like to think of him as a moth. Mm. And he's cocooning himself now and shit because I reckon he's just going to come out one day with the best film because no one will be expecting it. It'd be the equivalent of, I don't know, a nuclear attack. You wouldn't be seeing it coming. It'd be like, oh, my God, Bruce Willis has emerged as a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> You're way more optimistic than I am. I know. I, I just... want that. I want that so much. I want him to give that like, and I always use movies like Logan as an example. Like the X-Men and Wolverine character was on his ass until mm. they brought out that movie. James Mangold did a beautiful him. thing with that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and movies like, uh, what was the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maggie. Maggie. With yeah. The, yeah. Oh, you want that? You want that kind of drama with Bruce Willis in it? Even if it's a McLean, you know, like storyline, a real low key like gritty drama with him in it. Do you want to waste 198, uh, sorry, 98 minutes? Well, I did this week, James, on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but more about that soon. <laughs> it's not for anyone, unless you've really like completing all the trilogies in the mm. world. Unless you like Jesse Metcalf, because he's all right in it. But the writing is really poor. There's some choices in it that they like, they've got nothing for the main actress to do. So there's literally a scene explaining why she spends half the rest of the film like half naked. It's like, mm. oh, because she did this. It, it's so, 
it's it's a film that wouldn't have been out of place in like the late seventies. It's just a shit. It's just poor writing, bad decisions. Doesn't exist well in this world. But it's next level, Bruce Willis not caring, mate, and that's very special. Do you think Bruce Willis could just now just phone it in so much that he just takes the roles of like the coma patient? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And he just he just went through like maybe his next ten movies. He's like, you know, coma patient, dead person on the autopsy table. Well, I was thinking. I don't think they asked him to be there. I just think they they the set because obviously they're trying to save money. The set from Apex came in, and someone had accidentally locked Bruce Willis in it, <laughs> and they opened up, and he was there. And it was just like, oh, sets include Bruce Willis. <laughs> it's like the furniture. It's just like the furniture. So he comes with it. It's like. Do you want me to be a table? It's like, no, we need you to be human. He's like, oh, right. And he goes out and like changes his eyebrows and he comes back and he's like, I'm surprised human now. (laughs) (laughs) I really want him to get back into doing like the voice of dogs and stuff. That's where I want to see my Bruce Willis. You know when he did the voice of Spike in the Rugrats movie? Yeah. When it crossed over with Wild Thornberry's. Classic, mate. Voice of the baby. Yeah, look who's talking. There was three of them, James. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be great if if (laughs) the reviews came out and it was just like, Unbelievable baby, the baby. I've never heard a baby sound so bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bruce fucking Willis. If what happens? Well, we know what happened. We know what happened. He just gave up after Oceans. He, he realised he could make a lot of money by putting no effort in. And mate, do you know what? As a business model goes, he's earning more than I am. Yeah. So you go, Bruce. Good old Bruce Willis. Um, That's where Stars got says the episode. <laughs> yeah, most definitely, most definitely. We're, we're gonna, I'm going to put Scorsese talk in the middle of all this mm. film talk. We've got nine films to talk about. One we've just knocked out straight away. <laughs> the, the forgettable. I, I'm. I always want to save Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I feel we're going to go down the route of negativity with that movie. Yeah, so probably. I don't want to come into it too too quickly. So I'm going to talk about a, a a movie called Killing of a Sacred Deer. Have you seen it? I've not, but it, it sounds it sounds like it sounds a bit me. It sounds a bit. Enough pretentious to get me interested. It, yeah, I mean, it's based on an ancient Greek play, which I'm not going to butcher. I've butchered many languages. Mm, but and, not Greek. But not Greek. And I kind of want to save it. <laughs> I don't know what for. But one day I will butcher Greek as I have Latin, German, and every other language that I've tried to do on this podcast. Killing of the Sacred Deer came out in 2017. It's a movie by Yorgos Lanframos. So if you know um, The Lobster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which I love that movie. Obviously, Dog Tooth was huge. The, the favourite with um, Emma Stone. And, and Olivia Colman. Olivia Colman, she won the Oscar for. Yeah, Richard Vass was in there as well, wasn't it? She was. Yeah, so, it's you know, if you're going into an A24 movie, uh, which is the production in the studio, and it's a Yorgos Lanfamous movie, you kind of know what you're going to get. Hmm. Like when you go to see a Wes Anderson movie or an Adam Sandler film, it, it kind of sets you up before you go in. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is no different. It stars Colin Farrell again, Nicole Kidman, and it's got Barry Keenan in it, who, if you've seen Eternals recently, young Irish actor in that. Yeah. Uh, this is, I think, I believe his kind of breakout role his big introductory role. And he is fantastic in this. Certainly a one to watch. There's loads of rumours about him playing the Joker in the Robert Pattinson Batman oh, world. Can't see that. Yeah, yeah. He, he's got that swing behind the eyes. He's got that uh, deadpan look, but sinister feel to him. Also, he's he's perfect, like, perfect kind of like great. Now, he's not mega huge, but that's a sort of, you know, give him enough, yeah. you know, let him have some personal license with it. He could blow it out of the water. So this is a dark psychological horror thriller um, that is, like I said, based on a, a Greek play. Farrell plays Stephen, a successful heart surgeon. Ooh, oh, oh my God. The only heart he can't fix is his own. I wish it was that good. <laughs> no, actually, I like this film. I wish it was that beautiful. Oh. Um, this uh, you know, film starts with proper open heart surgery footage. It's 
you know, it's it's pretty full on from the start. It's not gory, it's not bloody. This movie isn't. When I say it's a horror and a, and a thriller, it's about the sense of terror and dread that this yeah. film builds, mainly which, from the score. Which is sometimes the worst part. It's sometimes the most, you know, effective. Yeah, think of a movie like Shining, because the Shining, because this is very Kubrick, this movie. Mm. Like, all my notes on this was like, it's so Kubrick. The way it's shot, the kind of cinematography, the, the um, brightness of the kind of the, beige monk um like uh, whites and magnolia colors there's no bold color throughout this whole film it does the whole film is set up like a, a kubrick movie you know the kind of the slow um zooming in you yeah. know is a uh, as someone's talking the shot uh, that's filmed from outside the doorway listening into a conversation and kubrick did that thing where he embodied you as a viewer as a spirit you know the shining is the best example of that but you know, you are the entity that's watching these characters play out. And and I think in this movie, Yoga Slam from us really channels that. The whole thing is, you know, it's set in hospitals. It's set in this huge home where you get the feel that you are the spirit kind of guiding around. It, it's it's really good. It's it, Farrell plays a, a heart surgeon. Um, he's married to Anna, who's played by Nicole Kidman. They have two kids. Stephen meets with this young boy called Martin, who's played, um, Martin, who's played by Barry Keenan. Uh, Martin's lost his father years, like 10 years before. Stephen and Martin have this friendship. They meet, they go out for dinner, um, lunch, nothing uh, untowards. You know, they're just two people that meet. But but he buys him lavish gifts. He buys him a watch, hmm. you know. And over time, he starts to say, do you want to come meet my family? Do you want to come, you know, meet my children? That's then um, returned. Elisa Silverstone's in this as, as the mum of Barry, uh, the mom, Barry's character's mum, Martin, Martin's mum. So there's this relationship there. Like, why does he, why is he hanging out with this Martin? And Martin as a character is really interesting. He's um, he's sweet, he's smart, but he's, you can tell the something behind the eyes. There's a motive. There's something about Martin that the film is going to tell us as yeah. we go through it. Martin's the one we're supposed to be watching. Um, you know, he's got a motive. He, he always flips between that sweet, smart, simple, but then... He's, you know, he's, he, there's something going on. He's got an ulterior motive. He's calculated. Martin starts to want more and more of Stephen's time to the point where Stephen's like, I can't, I've got a family, I've got a job, I've got all this other kind of stuff. And then that causes a bit of a rift between the two of them. To which then both of Stephen's kids fall ill. And it seems that Martin is the only one who knows the answer and what mm. Stephen has to do to save those two children. So it is very Kubrick. It, it has this staccato dialogue all the way through it. So if you know movies like The Lobster um, and The Favourite to a degree, um, the dialogue is like this, like, and, and, it, and it's really abstract dialogue as well. So the, they're in a hospital, right? Mm. Burning Man, Stephen is a top cardiologist, like surgeon. And Martin will just walk in and be like, how much hair do you have under your armpits? And then Conor Powell's like, a bit. He's like, can you show me? I can't right now, I'm working. Please, I want to see. Okay, one minute. And he like shows him his arm. He's like, hmm, you do have some more than me. Do you want dinner tonight? What time? Seven. Okay. They talk like that, like okay. very punctuated, staccato all the way through every character in this movie. And everyone talks out of like, like non-score abstracty, like they're walking out of a surgery, walking down this very long corridor. And then, um, you know, one of them goes, where'd you get your watch? And he's like, so-and-so. He's like, does it come with a leather strap? Yes, but I prefer the metal. Why do you prefer the metal? I just find it's cleaner. It lasts longer. I would like leather. Well, you can get leather if you buy this watch. It's kind of talk like that, that, it, like I said, it's really abstract, it's really weird, but very Yorgos Slamfromos and very kind of indie, quirky kind of feel to it. This is like a Cairns Film Festival film. Mm. Halfway through the film, it does turn and it becomes really quite um, unsettling and unnerving as the thriller, as the horror side of it starts to take over. 
again, not gore, not blood, nothing like that. Just the, the situation that develops. Um, I really, really liked it. It's two hours long, but it has the underpinning of this movie is not just like the, the color and the cinematography and the acting. Colin Farrell's really good in it. And, and I'm not always been the fondest of Colin Farrell. He's 50, 50 for you, isn't he? Yeah. He's have a great good and bruised, that kind of stuff. Or it's, it's the other Colin Farrell that I, I'm not really Daredevil. into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've been bitten. Um, <laughs> but it, to be honest, it's this seventies style score that it has. And the, there are scenes of like him just brushing his teeth with this very clear, um, like sharp, classic horror soundscape to it, which makes brushing the teeth look sinister, <laughs> you know, and like, and there'll be a scene where he's just going to bed, but the score continues to play up tension that you're like, I'm watching a horror, but nothing horror is happening. It's that kind of film, you know, like shots of a bit, you know, like we go to the next day, quick edit, looking at the hospital, it's like, boom, like, and there's this eerie violin playing over the top of it, but nothing horror is happening until halfway the movie. And then all of a sudden, right, here's the, you know, the, the play part of it playing out. So, mm. Um, and, and it just made a really interesting watch. Yeah. It's n- by no means going to uh, tickle everyone's pickle. And I think if you're uh, if you're not into maybe the more artier films, you, this may be a waste of two hours of your time. But if you like movies, there at the helm of it is a director who you know clearly has vision and and the scope, and he's delivering on what they set out to do when uh, when they uh, adapted the screenplay. This movie is certainly for you. I really like to kill another sacred deer. It's on Netflix. It's on the Netflix. Two sounds, hours. Sounds like my sort of thing. I, I like, if it's the kind of the staccato voicing, mm. I think it plays with an audience expectations as well. So that automatically makes them feel, you know, awkward because they're not talking normally. So it, it, even the way you speak, it kind of works against mm. you as an audience member. Like, it makes you feel uneasy. Add that to the music. And to be honest, the story might not even have any jumps in it. You might be like terrified. <laughs> Why yeah. is it like this? It, it, just, it just, it is weird. Like everyone in it is quirky and different. And um, so, yeah. And like I say, you can go, you can go from scenes of like open heart surgery and, you know, this put one character and it's no spoiler, um, but there's a character who like starts bleeding from the eyes. Mm. And then the next scene is like, can we have potatoes tomorrow, dear? What kind of potatoes? I would like mashed potato. That takes a little bit longer. Can I just put them in the oven all day and they'll be ready for dinner time? Okay, we can have baked potatoes. Okay, that's fine. Next time though, I'll do mash. Thank you. I would like mashed potato next time. It's like, that's like what the dialogue is all the way through it. It's freaky as hell. It, yeah, <laughs> it, but it's an interesting watch. And it's not your Islam from Us's best way. I, I still think the lobster, the lobster has that 20 minutes at the end that kind of outstays its welcome. Yeah. But the first hour 30, particularly the Ben Wishaw, the John C. Riley kind of stuff with Colin Farrell is, is top notch. But oh. yeah. So there you go. One avoid and one stick with. Mm. I don't have many notes on this. A few weeks ago, I had I found the film Speed Kills, and I have labelled it as the worst film I've ever seen. That's that's big though. It and Adam big. Sandler's not even in it, James. I know. John Travolta's, <laughs> and it's not it's not like Moonfall, which is a terrible film, but brilliant. But it, <laughs> t- Moonfall, I haven't seen it, but from what you told me, it knew what it was setting exactly. out to do. The Speed Kills doesn't it? It thinks it's going to be like the like. Goodfellas. Yeah, we're talking about Scarsese. He thinks it's Goodfellas. This is going to be the Goodfellas of the speedboat world. Exactly. It's just like, okay. But that got me thinking, there's got to be something worse there. And I'm not bringing you this on my journey. We're not going to do episodes on it. This is my own personal journey. I won't do that to you. So I typed in, what is the worst film on Netflix? Naked 2017, topping many lists as the worst Netflix original film to ever exist. It was time to put it to the test. This film stars substitute teacher Rob Anderson reliving the same hour wherein he wakes up naked in an elevator very late for his own wedding. So there you go. We've got Groundhog Day. And you know, mate, that I love the Groundhog Day. 
I the, love that kind of that storytelling. Mm. And I have happy death day. I thought it was really good. The idea that you replay this. So, so far I'm liking this, but what could possibly go wrong? Starring Marlon Wayans. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> we are treated to every cliche and over the top antics with no stone left unturned as we churn out all the same jokes. We've got dancing, we've got pratfalls, we've got misunderstandings and jokes that don't belong at all in this century. So we're talking straight, you know, anything you can think of. The jokes that you're thinking about now, they don't make in films. Yeah, they do. In 2017, they were still making them. Um, Many plot holes. But do you know what? Watching this with someone was actually kind of fun. So I watched it with Esther. We both had laughs, pointing out the stupidity of the film and its holes. Scoring 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, I was hoping for the very worst to compete against Speed Kills. But alas, my search may continue. As while Naked was bad, it wasn't the very depths of Outrageous. Was it boring? Yes. Was it long? Yes. Was it bad? Yes. Was it worse than Speed Kills? No. I like that that is the bar. That is the bar. <laughs> but I'm just going to say now, I do have some notes. Um, Marlon Wayans, this is your level. <laughs> Dennis Haber, what are you doing? Dennis Haber of 24, 24 fame. 24 fame, mate, The yeah. greatest president ever to grace the small screen. I'm just saying. And I say small screen, James. Yeah, because he's obviously no Whitmore. He's no Whitmore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love how we went to the same fictional <laughs> president. And I'm just saying that Regina Hall, what are you doing? <laughs> Regina Hall's in this. Yes, there's... It's terrible. This, this, this film is terrible. But do you know what? I watched it with Esther. We're taking a piss. It was kind of fun. I was watching Speed Kills on my own. I thought about throwing myself out of the building. So was it the very worst? It's not. No need to go into it too much. You you all, you all, know what you need to know. Mm. Marlon Wayne's move on. I think out of, out, of, out of tragedy, we always need to look at the positives. Yes. And we've just <laughs> struck on there. For the greatest fictional presidents. Yes. And actually, I think that's a great topic to find out what people think is the greatest fictional president. I think it's between, if you go on small screens, between Haber and Bartlett from The West Wing. I love The West Wing. He's mm. a, the weird thing is when you watch The West Wing now, so I haven't been re-watching, been watching the old episode, is we used to look up to politicians. <laughs> now, now they could get to fuck. Who played, because I never watched West it's Wing. It's Martin Sheen. Michael Sheen. Uh, Martin, yeah, yeah. 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 Older the, Sheen. Older Sheen, yeah. The, the, and Emilio Estevez's dad. You see, what I've done there is I've picked the better son. <laughs> <laughs> I think the better son. Emilio Estevez's dad. Yeah, it's dad. Martin Sheen, isn't it? Yeah. Is it Michael Sheen? Martin Mark Sheen's Sheen? the Welsh actor. Oh, there you go. I always get them confused. But that's that's great. That's a great series. And it's got it's got Tony Schiff and Bradley Whitworth in it. It's got both of them. Wow. There you go. So, But I think on the big screen, it's got to be... Um, it's Whitworth. It's Whitworth, yeah. It's Whitmore. Or it's my, favorite, my least favourite president, if you want to go down this route, is... The same batch of films, so it's still Roland, um, is in 2012 when the vice president is all against, we're not saving the nation, we're not doing any of that. The president dies and then he's supposed to be the hero that like, we'll stop global warming. It's like, whoa, whoa, hang about 20 minutes. Mm. You've changed your tune, dickhead. Who's that one? don't remember. Just some arsehole. But I'll never forget a Roman Emmerich film. I remember them all. <laughs> they haunt me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman. He what a president. One. Independence Day. If no one got the reference there. Yeah. Because uh, why would you? We're very cryptic on the show. <laughs> keep our... Anyway, naked. Don't watch it. It deserved it 0%. I'm going to talk about the movie Worth, which I know you've seen as well a few I weeks have. ago. Yeah. So I'm going to keep it positive. You, you keep bringing us down, James. I know. So I'm really hoping that the next film you bring out is a good one because, you know, we've still got a Texas Chainsaw Massacre to go. We've got a funny thing you didn't like that. <laughs> and... Um, Worth's a, a good movie, actually. I quite enjoyed it. I think Killing of a Sacred Deer, Worth, and a movie that I'm going to talk about in a minute, Beckett, were three movies this week that I, I thoroughly enjoyed for mm. different reasons. None of them are going to win Academy Awards or or kind of top anyone's list, but certainly 
in a time now where, you know, your personal time, your relaxation time is precious and the choice is so plentiful that it is a gamble nowadays, isn't it? It's actually be, a great way of putting it. Yeah. And, and sometimes you really, you really want a home run. You want a movie that you can trust. You want a movie that, you know, you, you think that was a good time, you know, that I wasn't doing something productive like exercising, <laughs> you know, but it, cause it was a good film. And with, I think, ticks that box. It stars Michael Keaton. It's got Stanley Tucci in it and Amy Ryan in it. And it it's a fascinating topic because it's it, it obviously it's, it centers around the 9-11 terrorist attacks in in, uh, in America. And so we all know about the terrorist attacks. We all know about the, the kind of the events that led up to it and the events that led after it. But I suppose it's the behind the scenes stuff that yeah, you don't you know about. Why it. would you? There's no real reason for you to know about it. But this is a really interesting story about, um, it centers around Michael Keaton's character, who's a Washington attorney who after the 9-11 attacks, he, his firm is tasked with the impossible job of handling the payouts and financial support to the victims of those attacks and their families. And this is in an attempt to um, avoid potential lawsuits and suing of airlines, which would further cripple the economy and destabilize America's recovery following a, a very tragic event. So it asks the question in the tagline of the movie is what is the worth, what, what is a human life worth? And it balances or it juggles that in the movie in the first kind of act to the first initial conversation by saying it can't, you know, it can't be a single payout because everyone in that building or buildings and and, and those that went into the building to save and the, the numerous casualties surrounding 9-11, you know, some had bigger mortgages, some had more mouths to feed if they were the breadwinners. And there were CEOs and janitors and there was all, and everyone in between that, that, that lost their lives on, on 9-11. So it's all about building an algorithm that creates worth mm. to a human life. And quite naturally, a lot of the families uh, denounce that and, and see it as almost insulting that, you know, that they're going to be paid out when what they really want to do is take their anger out on the airlines and the government and stuff. But and it does play this narrative. It's like, we have to do this. We have to figure out the worth, uh, you know, and, and settle this because, this is what the terrorists want. They want us to destroy each other inwardsly and, and um, you know, and sue and, you know, and destroy uh, big American companies. And, and it's what the terrorists wanted. And, and it's like, I could do without that part of the storyline and actually look at the ethical question here of how do you, how do you rebuild after such a horrible uh, attack? I would say as well, though, it is a Stanley Tushy powerhouse, this movie. You, he's not, you, you not love a, the Tush, though, I yeah. do love the Tush. And he's not in a lot of scenes. I think Amy Ryan steals the film. I think she's the, the star of the film. But... Tushy, I do like seeing him in a wig. Yeah. Do you know what I do find fascinating is, is Michael Keaton's career. So, you know, 80s, mate, he was the man, early 90s maybe. But let's be honest, the, the noughties, they were terrible to him. He kind of disappeared. When he shows up in the other guys and he's got uh, his police detect, he's a police captain and he's also working at Bed Bath & Beyond. I imagine yeah. that's exactly what Michael Keaton was doing. <laughs> but for someone to reinvent himself and basically become A-lister again, hats off to him. And, and what I mean by that is, he is so leading man now. Like films like Spider-Man really have helped him because then you see him in The Founder and you see him in films like this where he's asking moral questions. I'm with you. I think the film kind of forgets its own purpose. It's talking about they're trying to bring big companies mm. out. It's like, no, not, you, you've got a great moral story here, which is played perfectly through the two. You know, that's the, the element that he brings in. It's like, stop doing it. And it's, it's a really good story, a story that you don't really know much about. It's greatly told. But at the same time, it's just like, you. why did you go down certain routes sometimes? Without going to spoil, especially there's a part of the end, which I'll talk to you off air, which I didn't really understand why they went that route. But I was just thinking. I, I know the exact size. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, I, don't, I, I missed that. I did that come out of, that was a weird choice. But ultimately, a very good film. Um, but also that you don't really want to watch. It's just like, when you watch, 
they do a great. He's a great different side to a disaster we all know. Mm. They, I think that's the best way to put it. It's a well-told story and true. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I, for me, I think I like the film. I think it's well acted, and it was interesting. Um, I, I think for me, the, the my issue of it, without giving away the ending or too, or too much detail, in case someone does want to watch this, because I would recommend watching this this kind mm. of movie if you like a film, you know, that's based around you know, lawyers and attorneys working all hours of the night, someone going, get me more coffee and looking at whiteboards and paper and documents. And everyone it, likes a bit of old Chinese food in the middle of the picture. It's that kind <laughs> of film. Yeah. And then, um, you know, in the last third, it's all going to come together or one of them is going to have a change of heart or a change of character. And that, that is, and that's really my, my criticism of it is it, it focuses more on Michael Keaton's character evolving as a human than it does about resolving what is a very difficult situation. Yeah. And I always found like, the algorithm part of it is, is at the end of it, it's just like, yeah, well, you know, and it all sorted itself out. And it kind of focuses more on him turning into a real human. And it's not to say that his character at the beginning of the movie is not is a villainous yeah. or anything. He's compassionate. You know, he's obviously affected like the whole world was with 9-11 and particularly, you know, the Americans. Um, you know, it, but he's got a job to do and he's and he gets a phone call from the president and he's like, you have to do this job. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Someone's got to do it. You've got to do it. And so he's got that all the way through. It's like, it's just a job, you know. And by the end of it, he's... He's on the swings eating an ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> it, life. Yeah. But he <laughs> was never an arsehole at the beginning. So I don't get that awakening that he gets halfway through. Yeah. But um, it, it, nonetheless, it was it was very, very entertaining on something that I com- just was unaware of was happening, you know, at that time. Um, and it's a market. Yeah, like you say, Mackie, I, I noticed there in your summary, James, you didn't talk about Dumbo. Um, oh, that's true. You know. A movie about a Move giant on. flying elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and Colin Farrell played an amputee. Oh my God. Death. Range. <laughs> yeah. No. The only problem about Dumbo is it, it wasn't the elephant or the fire that destroyed the uh, Dumbo set. It was it's Michael Keaton eating that scenery. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Because he's so... It's like, what was his motivation for it? He's just like, I don't know, crazy. He's <laughs> odd, isn't it? There's nothing crazier than a fucking zoo owner. <laughs> I quite enjoyed Dumbo and I actually and I'll tell you why one of my favourite ever cinema stories and I told it on the episode when we reviewed oh, it oh you did I remember the story yeah. if anyone's new to this podcast and, and hasn't listened back to our previous ones the best experience ever waiting queuing to go into Dumbo there's a lady behind me who's clearly you know in her 80s 70s 80s and I said to her I said do you want to go in front of me because the queue was quite long it's not going to make much of a difference but and she was like no no I'm waiting for my daughter and granddaughter and I was like, oh, no worries. And uh, and she was like, Dumbo was the first movie I saw in the cinema and we're bringing the granddaughter for her first movie. And I was like, that made me like the film so much more than the film did. That's the power of cinema. Yeah. That is so nice. And I remember being in the cinema and even though I wasn't connecting to the big CGI elephant yeah. in Tim Burton's world and yeah. um, I just, I really couldn't believe Colin Farrell was an amputee at any point. But the, um, the kids were loving it. And, and again, it was one of them, you know, Oh, it's okay because they the 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 people that this is targeted towards are eating the shit up. Yeah, kids eating shit. That's the worst. <laughs> the worst. That's, moving on. Um, we got to do text change the mask at some point. We do. Where do you want to save it? Because I might have a decent film, or I might have a film. <laughs> so you have got a decent film or a film? I've got a decent film or a film. Do a film. Do a film. Right. I'm just gonna say this. Just because you just mentioned it to me, I'm just gonna say every time I go to so I've been to cinema quite a few times. There was a there was a period where I went lax. But now I go, I make, I get my limitless worth. I don't understand the point of me sitting in a cinema while Nicole Kidman explains to me why I should go to the Odeon when I'm sat in the Odeon. I don't understand that. It's really starting to irritate me. It's, it's worse than those 
it's a pat on the back, isn't it, for the it's audience? It's a pat on the back on his own, and she's like, it's a magical heartbreak looks good in a place like this. And you just think, shut up. I would like- Shut up. I would <laughs> like to see the, like, an everyman cinema advert at the Odeon. And so we'll just go, you know what? You're fucking right. I'm out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but they always remind me of, do you remember those um, piracy warnings on DVDs? It'd be like, you wouldn't steal a cat. <laughs> so why would you steal a DVD? And you just go, but I bought the DVD, which is why, because if you pirate it, you mm. cut that out. <laughs> really irritates me that Nicole Kidman was like, you should go to the Odeon. I'm in the fucking Odeon. Yeah, but it's the same as all adverts though, isn't it? Like car adverts. How many car adverts? No, one, no one's in the cinema right. going, I'm going to buy that Volvo when I finish it. <laughs> right, so I'm going to say this now, right? The Nissan, the Nissan Juke, I saw, I saw fucking promoted three times with the film, The Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it came out, it, the screen was like, it was black, but it had like red smoke. And then a Nissan Juke would come out and then the Batman symbol would come down. I was just thinking, yeah, because Batman's going to be driving a Nissan Juke in the fucking film. And it wasn't promoting the movie The Juke. No, that exactly, that's what see. I mean. That's what I mean. Anyway, so I've got two films. Death on the Nile, directed by Kenneth Branagh, starring Kenneth Branagh and Russell Brand, Ali Fazi, Gal Gadot, Rose Leslie, Tom Bateman, Annette Benning, Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders, Letitia Wright, Emma Mackey, and Sophie Ocondo. It's a big cast. It's a big cast, and I have forgot I've left out someone, which is hard to do because in the story they've got a bigger part. Um, do you want to find out the backstory behind the famous detective's moustache? Yes, yes, I fucking do, James. Then look no further than 2022's Death on the Nile. Bran is back with France's favourite export to the detective genre. France? Why about his Belgium? He's from Belgium, I'll have you know. I know he is, but... I didn't want to get into this argument to get over the fast talking crime solving mustache loving son of a bitch. <laughs> He's relaxing in Egypt where he stumbles upon poor writing. <laughs> Cause he comes across long friend book and soon joins a wedding party for Gal Gadot and instantly makes friends with everyone. Gal Gadot is nervous as a husband's previous partner and former friend is stalking them all over their honeymoon. Ooh, shy surprise. She only ends up dead. <gasps> well, Gal Gadot dies. Yeah. I didn't know that was what it centered around. Oh. Spoilers. I know someone dies. It's called Death on the Nile. But, but with the main suspect. Russell Brand's in the film. I would have thought it was him. But with the main suspect having a perfect alibi, everyone in the wedding party is a suspect. Even Poirot's longtime friend, Book. Oh. Now, Arnie Hammer's on this boat. He is. I haven't mentioned Arnie Hammer because it is his last film. And that he hasn't technically been found guilty of anything, but mm, I, mm, moving on. <laughs> so. He is the husband of Gal Gadot. I just realised that would have been the better link to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It would have been. If we're going yeah. to go down the road, cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. I'm just going to say he been can Sorry, has he been cancelled? This is his last movie. He, he has been cancelled. He's got nothing coming up, but also there's been, there's been more allegations that the cannibalism was a fantasy, but he's been accused now of sexual assault. Oh, so, so now he's now he's he's done. Yeah. <laughs> so he's done as he should be, if it's true. But it's, but it's a lot like, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Elegant set pieces. Oh my God, this film is so beautiful. Like everything about this film is perfect. And I've, the um, Murder on the Orient Express also did this. It looked fantastic. It looked beautiful. And it, that, that set up at the end, didn't it? The now was coming. He's like, Yeah, they are the two most famous Agatha Christie stories as I recall. But I, my problem is I actually, I really like Agatha Christie. I don't think they're that special. Well, and then, with, and then they were none has been done in different incarnations. That's yeah. the classic... Load of people go to a mansion. They all got the same invite. They don't know why they're there. They're all connected to a murder that happened years ago. That one by one, they're being picked off until there was none. That that's been done with other films following that storyline. But I've just read uh, the Monogram Murders, which is the latest one because now they have like ghostwriters now keeping the character going. Ah, uh, right. It's never the same, though, is it? No. Right. 
The film is beautiful. Set pieces, you know, you're exploring Egypt and it looks magical. It looks fantastic. Branagh is having fun in the main role and you can tell he loves the source material. That accent is so thick you could put it on bread, mate. It's thick and you could gobble it up. So at some point, though, it has to come off a cliff. There's non-existent chemistry between the staff, uh, between the cast, especially between Hammer and Godot. Like, there's none at all. It's like two fish just there. Just there. But Gal Gadot's a very pretty fish there. She is a very pretty fish. But there's, there's certain scenes with Hammer, bearing in mind that, bearing in mind the, the allegations of him, when you first meet him, the, the dancing he's doing, it's like, oh, fucking just show some fucking hell. Anyway, it's not very clever. It's really not clever and very predictable. If you don't see how this is done, you've obviously never watched him. We were talking about this last week. You never watched Jonathan Creek. The Jonathan mm. Creek, mate, you solved it like that. Well, he, he was the true detective. Exactly. He was, he was number one. Um, the film is way too long. So the film is a lot of build-up, and they did this with Murder on the Orient Express. It's so long that actually the murder, post-murder, is only something like 30 minutes. It's, like, it's a two-plus-hour film. Spend a lot of time building up. Like, who could it be? Um, non- I suppose if that's because if Gal Gadot's your murder victim, yeah, you want to get, you've the got to get your money yeah. worth of Gal Gadot before she goes. Um, none of the characters are actually evolved, and they're essentially two or three traits. So it's like, he's the businessman. He's not to be trusted. But that's it. That's all we know about Alpha C's character. Um, wasted talents all over the film. Rose Leslie being the biggest one. Everyone's there to be red herring. And, um, but when you've got some of this cast there, so Rose Leslie obviously famous for playing uh, Ingrid in Game of Thrones. You know, she's got a big career coming up. Russell Brand, who I actually weirdly quite like. I quite mm. like Russell Brand. The most sedated I've ever seen him. And I think I've seen him sedated on television. <laughs> um, Letitia Wright, very good. Um, especially uh, Emma Mackey and Sophia O'Connor. They were very good. I love Letitia Wright. Uh, you are... But the no, I won't spoil it for you. But her storylines were quite boring because it's quite backgroundy, and you have to look for it. You have to search for it. Ultimately, the film's boring. I didn't like it. But here's the thing: I am not an Agatha Christie fan. What annoyed me was I kind of guessed what had happened. But that's just me being a being a curmudgeon. If you're a fan of the source material, I don't. I think you'd quite like this. If you're a fan of murder mysteries and you don't know the story quite yet, I think you'd like this. Kenneth Branagh's mustache. Pyro's mustache, that's all I was in it for, mate. First 10 minutes, last five minutes, I'm great. The character does feel like they actually go through a journey and go mm. through something. However, the other characters don't. Yeah. They're literally there to be red herring one, red herring two. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it's great to see Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French again because I forgot how much of my childhood they inspired just by, you know, they were fantastic. Yeah. So a lot of, it's like, the way I best describe it is it, this is how I felt when I came out. It felt like I'd gone to a dinner party when I was a child and they were all adults. So I felt, I felt out of place. But in a few years, I feel like I would have really enjoyed myself at that party, if that mm. makes sense. So it was a party that I wasn't invited to. <laughs> That's how I've decided to describe it. On a boat. On a boat, where someone had died. But, you know, a lot of talent, a lot of talent. Shame you didn't do anything with them. <laughs> so well, there you go, Kenneth Branagh. I, I, I'll watch it when it comes out, because I quite like Kenneth Branham. I quite like the big ensemble cast. I like the murder mystery element to it my thing is do you know what it is is when I watch it I will compare it to Knives Out and Knives Out was just fucking phenomenal yeah Knives Out 2 is coming to Netflix I know I'm yeah found a home and this I, one this one found, it struggled didn't it this film has been on the shelf for I was years just, Covid had hit it it's, I think it got made well look at the cast <laughs> you I think they just they want to get it out yeah, yeah before Army Hammer really does go down the toilet yeah exactly um, but again you know it's another, it's another film but it, yeah I saw a movie this week that I think you would love and I would highly recommend. I didn't know what I was starting when, when I turned it on. Like this movie called Beckett from 2021. Ooh. It's a film that's directed by a chap called Fernando Cito 
Villamarino. It's not Greek, is it? You're not watching Greek today. It is Greek. Is it? And I fucking went for it. I'm sorry. There's nothing wrong with that. When I was in Norwich, I had Greek food for the first time and I couldn't pronounce what it was. So in the end, they went, I'll have the chicken with yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was called. It was like, <laughs> fucking stop talking, James. <laughs> no, it's just like, I could not pronounce it at all. I'm terrible with anything like, it's just like, I don't know what it just was. Just really British. But very nice. Just though. pointed at a menu. Yeah, just pointed at it. Yeah, so it's just like this, please. This film stars uh, John David Washington. It is set in Greece. Um, it also has uh, Boyd Holbrook in it. Oh, I love Boyd Holbrook. Do you though? Yeah, kind of. Do you? No, Logan? No. Predators? No, I was taking a piss. No. Boyd Holbrook. He wasn't in Predators. He was in The Predator. The more, the more unforgettable yeah, the, the, one. <laughs> the terrible one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's, do you know what? I really like this film. It's, it's about an hour and 50 long. It centers around a couple that are holidaying in uh, Greece. They're uh, traveling the small remote areas of the, the northern part. Um, you know, they're away from Athens. They're away from the big city. They wanted the quiet, raw escape. There's a car accident. Very tragic. Hmm. They, uh, they come off the road at night. You know, uh, it's no spoilers in the trailer. Sleep, he falls asleep behind the wheel. And he tumbles off the side of this road, falls down the bank and smashes into a house. When he wakes up unconscious, he gets out of the car. Unfortunately, his his, uh, his partner has passed um, and he sees a boy and a woman in the house that he's just smashed into, okay. assuming, you know, just burst into a family home. Like, what are the odds? It's this house in the arsehole of nowhere that they've smashed into. Later on, he's picked up by the police, goes to has the hospital, all this kind of stuff. Police start to ask him about, you know, the uh, series of events that happened. Tragic accident. No one's, you know, th this he's not under investigation or anything like that. They're just trying to get to a sequence of events that led to um, the crashing into the house and then them finding him. He starts to mention that he saw a boy in the house and starts to, and it's quite distinguishable. He had big, he had like long red hair. Could have been, you know, he was, he was, he was very distinguishable. He was like, he must have been someone specific, not, you know, just like random shadow or something. Yeah. It's, you know, and the, the boy looks a bit scared at the time. Is it a horror? No, no, it's, oh, it's, okay. a, it's a thriller. It's very much in in Hitchcockian, um, what's it, North by Northwest kind yeah. of uh, thing. Because this is where the movie changes. This is the, that's the first 10 minutes. That's the setup. He saw a boy in this house and he probably shouldn't have seen this boy. Um, the police then all of a sudden turns and changes and starts to ask him a few more questions and says, you know, would you, can you take me back? Can you show me what you saw? You know, and it turns out that um, the boy is uh, kidnapped. Oh. you'll find out more about that later on, which I don't want to spoil, but there's something going on in the background. And the reason why they didn't go to Athens and the bigger cities and they want to go to the roads, they want to get out of a street that big is going on. And this boy has been kidnapped and maybe entwined with all of this. Now he is on the hunt from the dirty cops that may be in on this kidnapping. And he has to get to the US embassy in F Athens via whatever means. And it, the movie then does change into a chase movie. Okay. You know, so he's climbing the mountains, he's jumping on trains, he's trying to hitchhike, he's trying to get there by any means to, to Athens. Um, and on his tail are these <clears throat> police, these assassins, these kind of um, individuals that are hell-bent on preventing him getting to the embassy. Do you know what? It is a really good movie. Not not for the fact that uh, John David Washington is in it, who's a big fan of from films like uh, Black Landsman, <clears throat> obviously um, Tenant a couple of years back. <clears throat> Apologies. It's a film that's shot very realistic, you mm. know. So when the guns go off and um, some people do get shot in it and, so, and, you know, people sustain injury from various ways, it feels very real. You remember, I remember when I watched like the films like The Born Identity and those kind of films, people got hit. It, it, it was like, oh God, that must have fucking hurt. Yeah. You know, it, that kind of film. This is very much like that, you know. It's like it's it's the um, the scrambling over cliff edges to hide from bullets as they're being fired, and the you know the um, 
the, uh, the, the, the knife attacks and all this kind of stuff that happens. It's very graphic and brutal, but very real. It's really, really interesting though, because it, it's a film that just keeps drip feeding you more of the storyline. Like why are these people after you? Who is that boy? You know, even stuff about John David Washington's character and why he's over there. And it, it is really good. It's got the right amount of action in it. Believable action, you know, and apart from one scene, there was one scene where I was like, no. And it involves someone jumping off something very high and landing on something that is not soft. Um, but apart from that, it's like, it's really, really good. A really, really good, good movie. Really enjoyed it. Called Beckett. You know what? You've coloured me interested, mate. And I haven't used that term in a while. That sounds that sounds a bit alright. I I would probably recommend it. It's one of them films where I think I don't know, but um, it feels like they they used a lot of um, like non actors in it, just real people that live yeah. in those parts. It was very genuine. Like John David Washington sticks out like a tourist in this movie. Yeah. Um, he's also you know he's uh, Denzel's son. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. you know so he's got that kind of all the way from like oh, he sounds so much like his dad he's got that same <laughs> that same voice but um it is it, really really good he's a powerhouse he's such a good performer in this movie uh in all the films that, that i've seen him in but i would really recommend it i thought it was really 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 good and i didn't know anything about it i just saw beckett and i saw john david washington was in it and i went yeah go on then best thing i've put on this week Oh. That is my recommendation. Beckett. Beckett. Beckett, that's a good... And I know I say this all the time, and I'm like, James, watch it. And you're like, yeah, I will. And you never really... really. No. Some, sometimes you do. Sometimes. Sometimes, but not, not as often as I'd like. Okay. Beckett, I would say definitely watch it. Beckett. Mm. Netflix? Netflix. Netflix. <clears throat> yeah, really good. Really good. Do you know what I'm going to tell you then? You know, that thing, we'll, we'll make you wait for Scarsese. I will go with my recommendation of the week. Got an email. Should go see the cinema. Got... Limitless screening. So it's not out to the end of this month. It's got one of those weird problems where it's got 2022 on it, but it came out in 2020s. The Duke, it came out at a festival in 2020. Right. Directed by Richard, uh, Roger Michel, who did, um, he's passed, it was his last film. He did. Uh, so everyone thinks that uh, the guy who wrote Four Wings and a Funeral also directed um, Notting Hill. They didn't. Richard Curtis. Yeah, Richard Curtis didn't actually direct uh, Notting Hill, apparently. Roger Sheldon, or wrote one anyway. So it's his last film. It stars Jim Broadbent, Helen Mirren, Finn Whitehead, Anna Maxwell Martin, and Matthew Good. So I went to the cinema. Mm. Didn't really have any expectation. I saw never even heard this. Song. Saw a trailer for this film just before we watched Death on an R. First time I heard about it. It's on the bus stops everywhere. It's got that kind of like quirky. It's like, what's the joke? What's it about? Very little told. Mm. British through and through. It's made from Yorkshire films as well, which I really liked. Um, Don't they just make tea? Then, then, see, that's what, that's what I was like. But then, but then there was... A, do you know when you watch a film and it's got a trailer for a film you know will never come to cinema? Mm. There's a film coming out called Ali and Ava, which looks fantastic, but you just know it's like, well, that's not coming to Lincoln. <laughs> anyway, Kempton Bunton is a self-educated working-class man from Newcastle who takes up several campaigns to try and better the world for his fellow man. Great character based on a real person. So Kempton uh, Bunton, and the story you're about to tell is a lot realer than you realise. We first meet Kempton as he argues with the TV licensing people. Kempton has tinkered with his TV and removed the ability for the TV to get the BBC and therein does not need a licence. Boom. That's his argument. He is arrested and spends 13 days in jail. Not having a TV licence? Not having a TV licence. So this is set in the 70s, I should point out. No, earlier than that. Um, uh, there he takes up a campaign for OAPs to get the TV licence for free. During this time, the UK government buys the portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Goya and displays it in the National Gallery. 
Kempton takes two days off to try and convince the people of London to get behind the campaign. So you see him and he's, he bursts into, bursts into the BBC, trying to get people to write, because he also writes screenplays. His daughter has passed on, he's got two sons. So he's in that kind of weird place. Helen Mirren plays his wife, who basically is the polar opposite. She's very by the book. She works for a upstanding family. She tries her best to fit in and do what's right. There's a brilliant scene later on where she's bought a TV licence, but it doesn't matter because the TV can't get the BBC and Jim Broadbent refuses to put it in. Um, but shy surprise, the painting only ends up in Newcastle where Kempton holds it ransom without anyone else knowing and demands that the elderly of the country get more benefits. But after other people start to find out, Kempton decides to return the painting of his own accord and is then put on trial. And this is a tour de force, man. I frigging love this film. You know when there's that film, the film that you have no expectations of yeah. is the film that gets you. Mm. Jim Broadbent is unstoppable. He's likable, charming, funny, larger than life, embodies the working class. The whole like final act when he's on the court, in the court, getting, getting lectured and questioned, he's fucking next level. He's, he's the reason. You're watching this film and you remember why you love Jim, Jim Broadbent. He is this. I never forgot, James. Well, that's true. You know, he's up, his performance is up there with great big bushy beard for me. It was fantastic. <laughs> Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. Helen Mirren is the polar opposite. Believable, likable. You want to be on her side. You can understand why she's flummoxed at why the, the man that she loves stands up for social injustice, but she's the other side. She's the realist. She needs to pay the bills. You know, that type of thing. She, she likes that he takes a passionate stand, but she's kind of like paralyzed by what's happened. So she can't even go to the the graveyard and visit. The two sons that play, which, you know, she's desperate to hold on to them or let them do anything. And the writing sharp and witty. It's perfectly paced. It's just over an hour and a half. It's fantastic. You feel like there's no drop time, no wasted moment. Every moment builds to the next. Great callbacks. It does the thing where what you've seen might not be what you saw. You It plays on your expectations as an audience member. It goes, you think that. We didn't tell you. It's a great story with Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren wishing I, they were my grandparents. I was mm. just like, oh, uh, I'm not having to go with my own grandparents. They did a great job. No, this year. Uh, you tell me every week. <laughs> but I'm just saying that it was absolutely phenomenal. It was so much fun. Is it the best film I've ever seen? No, but it was a good film. And do you know what? There's nothing wrong with being a very good. It was Jim Broadbent was fantastic as Kempton. And it's that sort of film, mate, that afterwards did a bit of research and a lot more of that film is true than you think it is. And that's brilliant. It's this story that I didn't know that, you know, our grandparents and our parents might have known because it was this big deal. Mm. But the idea that he stole this painting to fund TV for OAPs, it was fantastic. Just the idea as well that people used to go to jail for uh, not paying their TV license is mental. It's good. Um, it's a it's a good concept for a British film. It is. And I'd like to point out, again, a lot truer than you think. I like Broadbent. I remember years ago writing like a list of things I want to achieve in life and like literally in my top five was grow old enough to have a cool old man voice. Yeah. And Broadbent's one of them that I always think, God, if, I, if I'm lucky enough to get to like elderly, I want a really cool granddad voice like Jim Broadbent has and like um, Michael Gom uh, Gambon has. Yes, he does have a great gravelly yeah, man voice. Yeah, David Attenborough, you know, distinctive, awesome granddad voice, great granddad voice, whatever it is. Jim Broadbent, I love him though. He is, he's fantastic. Isn't it? And like I say, Helen Mirren cannot be on the stage. Those two are tour de force. Yeah. It's just, Broadbent's so, a local lad. I know, he's Lincolnshire. Yeah. Good man. Good man. Yeah, we make him well here. Yeah. <laughs> him. What? <laughs> and that guy from the box. <laughs> he did the voice of the queue, didn't he? On ITV. No, he just lives here. <laughs> oh, okay. Colin, uh, oh, I've got his name now, yeah. Oh, but he's, and then he was the, the commissioner in The Dark Knight. <laughs> yeah. 
There you go. That was really weird. I remember watching Watchmen in the cinema yeah. next to the commissioner from The Dark Knight in Lincoln Cinema because he lives out this way. That's weird, isn't it? I can't remember his surname. But yeah, he does the voice of the cube on ITV as well. <laughs> there you go. And he was in The Commuter with uh, Liam Neeson and he played the conductor of the train. I'd just like to point out, everyone's got that. Liam Neeson, that's a lot of them. <laughs> He sometimes has a good film, sometimes. <laughs> We're going to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. And I'm going to give some forewarning. If you haven't seen this movie, might, I'm not going to intentionally spoil it, but there's so much fun to be had with talking about this movie. Naturally, there may be some things that you might not want to know until you've seen it. I will give you the heads up, though, in case you're thinking of skipping forward five or ten minutes to skip this chat. This is so play-by-numbers movie. You know this film. You know this. You know what's going to happen. So it's no spoiler when we start talking about it. Because it's exactly what you think is going to happen. There are definitely spoilers that are going to have to come out. That's the problem. I just, because it's too juicy not to it's talk too, about this movie. It is a bit too juicy. I was so looking forward to this because the 1974 movie scared the shit out of me, still does, and is probably, to me, one of the most terrifying films ever made. It is from start to finish terrifying. It is a film that has an a, a, a ambient horror vibe from start to finish that is terrifying. There is not much blood or gore. It's the idea of someone wearing someone else's face while chasing you with a chainsaw in the middle of Texas. I don't know, James, just fucking scared the willies out of me. Yeah, right? It's a scary premise, mate. Now, we've then been a slew of terrible uh, sequels, reboots, remakes, including the sequel of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 86. We had the uh, the return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 94. We had Leatherface in 1990. We had the remake in 2003. We had the che- Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning in 2006. We had Texas Chainsaw 3D in 2013. And we had Leatherface in 2017. And I'm pretty certain I've even forgotten one. Yeah, probably. But get rid of them all, Get rid James, of them, mate. Because this is the true sequel. Ooh. They've seen... They've, they've, they've Halloweened it. They've seen the cheddar that Halloween has made mm-hmm. and thought, I want a slice of that. And do you know Dollar what? Up, mate. If, if them's the rules that we could just say, fuck them sequels. Yeah, fuck them. We're going to do the same thing. Almost exactly the same thing. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Especially when the surviving character of your original movie, is his surname is Strode. It's very on the nose <laughs> that this is Halloween. And this is what I mean about a few things that you might not want to know before listening to this bit, but it's too fucking juicy. Movie's directed by David Blue Garcia. It was actually going to be directed by two other directors. They all dropped out. I know. It, I wonder why though. Because yeah. I wonder what vision they had. For the well, yeah, because originally they scrapped a, a 50% made movie and restarted it from scratch. So God knows what that film was like. Probably better. I don't know. Um, it stars uh, Siri Yankin and it has uh, Elsie Fisher Elsie Fisher big fan 8th grade was a brilliant movie mm. brilliant film um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 it's one of them that's going to get really confusing do you see Texas Chainsaw Massacre which one yeah because <sighs> I can't tell the middle ones apart no I one of Jessica Biel in it was it yeah that's the 2003 one or I that was like wrong turn or something no that was I oh, don't get signed alright oh it was Faith from Buffy the Vampire's there. I'll take your word for that. Eliza Ducat. Was anyway, it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> don't question me on that. Please don't question me on wrong turn. Not in a way that I'm so confident because I'm fucking down. That's another one of them horror franchises where there was like three of them. Now there's a reboot and Hills of Eyes, all them kind of, it's yeah. all the, it's all part of that like gore horror stuff. And Test Chainsaw Massacre though, the original to me is top notch, probably mm. top tier. The original? Way, yeah, way scarier than any Friday the 13th, way scarier than any uh, Freddy Krueger movies. 
I put it up there with the original Halloween movie as mm. like my kind of top two horror films. Do you rewatch it, the original? I have seen it, yeah, since since um, since it terrified the shit out of me when I was a kid. Cool. Um, so a young group of flesh, uh, flesh, fresh bloods arrive at the remote <laughs> Texan town, unaware of the horrors that await them. Whereas in '74 we had hippies and camper vans, in 2022 we have influences and a Tesla. It's fucking weird, isn't it? The group have purchased various properties. In a in a in a dusty town that looks straight out of a western. Well, just 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 I know you're just in there. Can we just stop for a minute and go and go? So land developers, which is you know you can understand because weirdly, if you have a murder house, the writing suggests well, no one will go back to that house. So you, the next the sequel would be a land developer who comes in and is like, I want to knock down this terrifying house, and then that's when it gets rehaunted. That kind of makes sense. These fucking knobheads have bought an entire town, and no one's thought. Maybe you should do a bit of research. Yeah. Maybe you should look at it. Should have been called Last Town on the Left. It's that kind of feel to it. It's a terrible... Well like, done. It, oh, no. It, it, it looks like a Western. It, it does. Look, it look, I genuinely thought Leatherface was going to have a six-shooter at one point. And, <laughs> it, would, and it, would, have, it would have made more sense. Yes, yeah, <laughs> oddly it would. The, so this is a, a, a derelict town, you know, tumbleweed going through the centre of it. Apart from... The mechanics that's still open, yep. don't know whose car is servicing. Doesn't matter. And the orphanage, they're, yep. they're really mad that the woman still lives there. The elderly lady, they're really mad when they get there that she hasn't fucked off. It's almost as if that needs its own storyline to explain what's going on there. Mm. Oh my God. Um, it, insert Confederate flags, nods and callbacks to the original, returning characters, enough fake blood to fill a swimming pool, or in this case, a party bus. That and doesn't you, make any sense because Windows exists. And you have a requel like no other. And that is, uh, sorry, and that is a uh, a reboot sequel, the Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This film is fucking bonkers. It's an hour and 20 minutes long, so it's short. And that's because they skipped all the story. Yeah. So it is literally these guys turn up. I straight away watching this, right? And I'll tell you, and this, this is a, this is, people think this is a joke, taking the piss, but it's a true story. The other night, it was about two in the morning, couldn't sleep before. I'm going to come downstairs, put Texas Chainsaw Massacre on. I'm going to watch that because I can't sleep. I was sleeping 20 minutes. Yeah. This movie, like, zonked me out. It was, oh, they turn up, they rock up to town in this Tesla and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, bring people to it. This is like, you know, n- why, what business model are you going to bring people? Where have you got the money to buy a town? Well, also just like, why does everyone show up like expecting a big party? That's why I don't say it's like, let's go out and have a barbecue. It's like, but where are you staying? Because the place is a shit. It's, you're kind of lucky that some guy showed up and killed you because it's an excuse to fucking leave. You'd be like, oh, that's good. Yeah, you can go back home now. This movie aspires to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original in 74. Honest to God, I was getting vibes of House of Wax watching this. Yes. The Paris Hilton movie. Yes. That is the nearest thing I could think of to this film. Where like, there's a whole town that no one is in and these car breaks down. It's normally in a horror movie, it's that, isn't it? Car breaks down, whatever it is. They pull in for gas. They, you know, they want to buy snacks or something like that. Two of them go off and have sex in a building and they get killed first. And it's that, you know, there's a formula that horror movies play down. It also tries to, what I don't think is like, so if you're trying to update old films and you're trying to make them like up to date with new scares, I don't think, I don't think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the film. Like there's a scene where, it's not the scene where they get pulled over right at the beginning by the two police. You're supposed to think from where we look at it now. It's like, are you worried about because the, the main driver's African-American? Are you thinking, oh, is he going to get killed? Is that what they're going for here? And it turns out they're not. Is it just a scare? I don't know what they've gone for. And then like the use, I swear to God, of Snapchat later, mate. 
was mm. fucking bizarre. TikTok, I think, is used. Oh, it? was it TikTok? Where that person comes up and goes, "Oh my god, this looks so fake." I was like, "Yes." It's like I agree. The, the film does look cheap. The, the so. You're right. I mean, it starts with two sheriffs pulling over the t- the car as it's heading towards this town, giving him the warning, you know, like, he was never caught, you know, and he was never caught because he was wearing a mask. Say it as it is. He was never caught because he was wearing someone else's face. They were looking for the wrong person. They they do this amazing thing at the beginning because if you sneeze, mate, you miss everything. Like at the beginning, it's like edited really quick. It's supposed to be like this new show and it's like, this woman, she survived. Now she's the ultra survivalist. But I missed that bit because I was like drinking my tea. And then later I was like, who is this? Who was this? We're going to get to her, James. But, but it's so fastly edited. Like, if you didn't pay attention for the first 30 seconds, fuck you. Yeah. You, you learn nothing. Now, bearing in mind that they're in Texas, they're close by to where a massacre happened all, the, all this time ago. You've just had two sheriffs give him the forewarning. He was never caught. And they, the first place they decide to go investigate is the orphanage next to the mechanic with a Confederate flag. Yep. So they go in, and this is the bit that really was alarm bells going off. They go into this woman's house and she's not moved out. And they're like, look, we're bored. Creek, which I didn't, I, she, she's getting old. I really like Ice Creek. She's a, uh, She's never in good films. She's mm. always she would place that werewolf in that friggin' Stephen King horrible. Yes, film. she yeah. does. Sorry. And when they're in the orphanage, lo and behold, at the top of the stairs is a big dude, and no one goes fucking. He looks like he could chainsaw some people because he's wearing the exact same clothes. Well, what do you mean? This is fifty years later, and he's the same build. What? He's the same age. <laughs> he, he looks the exact same. Well, shit. Now, the- but, but no, because you know. Because Texas is a big place, mate. No one thought to look in, you know, five minutes from the original massacre. No, uh, uh, yeah, in the orphanage with the barred windows, oh, with okay. the with the big man that is, is yeah. never moved out, <laughs> living with the elderly woman. Like, it's got horror written all over it. It's not a spoiler because it's in the, when you hover over Netflix, the next bit shows you. So this is where I'm going to, so something happens to her, the guardian of Leatherface, which reawakens his bloodlust and his murdering cannibalistic ways. And he then just starts to slaughter everyone in the town. Now, there are four characters that the film um, focuses on. There's a few additional that are living in the town and then a party bus arrives. Don't don't question it. (laughs) Which is full of people that are going to buy property in this dusty shithole thinking (laughs) it's a great business opportunity. So you have plenty of fodder for him to <laughs> soar his way through. As someone who's about to join the fucking housing market, I hope that's what they do. It's not right. We're just going to drive to this abandoned fucking village. Pick pick one. Yeah. I'll be careful though, because the party was getting about to <laughs> get the best house. It, it's, it's really odd as well. Like the set to this movie, you know, the mechanic, you know, and, and he's got like, he's, so he's got a Confederate flag next door yeah. to his mechanics. He's already got road rage because they've nearly been run off the road by him. Which doesn't make sense either. He's just a dick for he's no got, reason. He's got a machine gun yeah. on the show. He's like, you know, this guy across from the cinema, <laughs> which is shut, but the lights are on and all the lights are on outside showing like, you know, what film used to be screening next to the orphanage. What fucking town is this? <laughs> Great one. One that's for sale apparently. Well, yeah. That, my What I really like about this as well, this movie is... When he kind of, so lo and behold, he skins a face, puts it on. Don't yeah. know how it stays on. It's glue, mate. Because he's not near the house. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's been taken out of town and he takes a face off someone. Did he pack string <laughs> or Velcro or something? How's that skin staying on his face? I would like to point out as well that he's lucky that the face is a similar size. <laughs> I'm just saying, because it, because if it's slightly like if the eyes apart, he yeah. could be blind because one of his eyes might be showing, the other one might be a bit further apart. All human faces aren't the same size. Yeah, and I mean it's quite good. I mean he takes a woman's face, which yeah. is which you know I, I didn't see that coming. 
Yeah. Didn't see that coming. It, you're right. It, it, considering she's about five foot one <laughs> and he's about seven foot, lucky fit. I mean, he probably stretched it a little bit. Yeah, a little Skin's bit. He's yeah. got a bit of elasticity in it. But um, all of that stuff where he's like putting the face on and everything, and it mirrors the original, you're like holding the skin up to the to the sky and like seeing the sun come through it. It's got them like original nods and stuff. But right from that bit, I was like, and then when you see him, you're like, oh, that face looks really weird, doesn't it? Like, yeah. and considering someone was just wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't look like the woman that was just wearing it. But Fucking the film start, the first person he takes out, or the first group, he's now got some superhuman strength. Yeah. Like he breaks someone's arm to the point where the bone sticks out of the skin yeah. with the flick of a wrist. And I'm like, oh, and he must be 80, although he doesn't look it. And I'm, and I'm not going to lie, James, he, he eats a considerable amount of bullets in this film and yeah. keeps going. So is he now a superhero? I don't know. Yes. Right. It makes more is sense it the skin it. face like he, that he, makes him that gains, way? The skin they eat, it hardens his skin. And this is the other, this is what I <laughs> like about call it. Him leather faces. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I like about it as well. He's like, so he's he's been hiding for like fifty odd years or whatever the, the movie says, and he's you know not well. He's hiding in plain sight in the yeah. orphanage in the in the dusty town, five minutes away from where the original murders happened. But yeah. by and by not cut any hair not lost any weight wearing the same clothes yeah we're in the same blooded apron and yeah. I really I really like this as well the movie's called Texas Chainsaw Massacre don't get that chainsaw straight away it's like he has to level up <sighs> he has to kill a few people with glass and bludgeon them with sledgehammers and then eventually he's like where's the sled I know I hid it I hid it because if anyone comes knocking I'll just say I'm a, I'm a fucking teacher or It'll something go, go, Texas yes Massacre yeah. yes no chainsaw no no chainsaw <laughs> you prove it where's the chainsaw and what's great is you've only got to assume that that chainsaw's 50 years old yeah works like a child I'd like mate. to point out that I've used a chainsaw they're fucking awful they don't do anything there's mm. so much easier ways to kill a person <laughs> like throwing like you know bearing in mind he's kind of like a butcher he's got hammers he uses a hammer at one point which, which is more devastating I just think chainsaw's cumbersome also gonna tag gonna ask you now mate I've been in a fucking double decker bus I've mm. been in buses you don't get that much fucking room how are you swinging enough that you can maybe cut through certain things? I'm just saying this scientifically, mate. Not all that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to challenge the science of this movie. <laughs> I'm going to challenge the science. If if you if you're a fan of like 90 minute horror films that Netflix pushes out, this movie will deliver. If your big criticism from the original is that there was not enough blood and you want to see people get chainsawed, you will get that in yeah. fucking waves. You will see. Limbs come off. You'll see people split in half, cut in half. You'll see people impaled and chainsaws doing all sorts of horrible things to human beings in in just montages of blood. And you will get all that shit. If that's what drives you to watch a movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you will get that. You will not get anything else though. There's no story. It, you literally get the setup. And the, there is what will I think will go down is known as the bus scene, which I think if anyone... If anyone had that lust of like, oh, fucking hell, it's brutal. Like, he's got a chainsaw. You will get your fix from that scene. Like, it is brutal. It is. It's, it's, it's so stupid. It's, it's stupid. stupid. It, none of it looks real. But, and it, I, I'm not a director, James. I, I don't make films. There, I was just screaming. There is so much, so many better ways to film this. The person hiding under the seat as arms fall to the floor and stuff is scarier than people with mobile phones out going, Oh, you're live on TikTok as they're being chainsawed. Oh, because he the, fucking says that. Because that, that 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 then takes you out of the horror. And then then the scene of him getting on board the bus yeah, with you, the chainsaw. We're literally about to say the same thing. And he, he goes, I'm going to cancel you. Yeah. I oh, just fucking so you've gone you've gone from building something really terrifying, and I imagine it's worst case scenario to a lot of people, to all of a sudden, right, well, 
You've now just took me right out of this scene. Kill him first. <laughs> and he does. <laughs> it's just fucking ridiculous. It is, I forgot uh, about that until you mentioned it. Yeah, it is. In the original as well was about stumbling on the dirty secrets of America's backyard. It was the idea of like, shit, the wrong place, the wrong time, the yeah. wrong family to come into contact in with. In the middle of nowhere. You know, you, you middle of nowhere, you're vulnerable. Oh my God. And like, you left that movie thinking they were going to get caught. She, you know, one, one survivor got away, got the police. Like, I think, because they're not running, like, because they don't see themselves as villains. And that, that was the truly terrifying thing about the first movie. Is there a family? And it's like, well, this is what we do. This is Texas. It was that kind of feel to it. That Then, you know, after that first movie, you didn't get the impression that they were all going to go into hiding and, yeah. you know, like stop wearing skin masks and shit. It turns out. It turns out they did. But that was the the thing about that first movie that made it so terrifying. A lot of it was in daylight and the end scenes where he's swinging the chainsaw above. Oh, they, yeah. You know, it was terrifying. And they try and recreate a lot of that in this movie and it just doesn't pay off. And, and I think it is because you get numb very quickly. When you see the first person swords, it, it then just becomes a, you know, a, a kind of montage of that. And there are characters that, again, going back to the superhuman thing, there's, a, there's an original survivor from the original movie played by a different actress, comes back in this movie and it's like, remember me, fuck out with a shotgun. And what I really liked is she's like, you don't remember me. And he's like, fuck no. <laughs> like, I really wish you spoke at that point. It was just like, who are you? <laughs> like, eh? but, <laughs> Like all of that stuff, I was like, "This is rubbish." It's 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 trying to do what Halloween did. That I think Halloween did so much better. You know the the uh, Halloween. Halloween well, that's oh, the no, new one, isn't it? It was just Halloween, wasn't it? Um, so yeah, I, I I really struggled with it. I mean, but horror is laughable. Horror is the genre where you you know as a viewer you're screaming. You know, don't go up the stairs, get out of the house, run away. You know, oh, my phone batteries died. It is the frustrating. Um, genre of film that as an audience member you're like for god's sake just stop pissing about and get out of that house you know and this is no exception it's it's people doing stupid things and then paying the consequences very fucking brutally for doing the stupid things there are a couple of scenes that i was like there's a there's a scene where someone gets killed and there's a swinging door which is very much a nod to the first movie and the first death in the first movie and you only see the violence every time the door swings open. And there are so a couple of things well, in that I was like... That's scarier than just seeing... The problem is the, the film is playing homage. Once they've changed its audiences, so we expect, you know, audiences now expect a bit more. Mm. But weirdly, the horrors that stick out are the ones that go back to the roots. The implied line, that's really cool. But then the last 10 minutes, without spoiling that, that's, that's so funny, mate, that I... That was hilarious. Mm. And just everything, like the idea of this technology that's brought in doesn't work in a film that takes this change of massacre. Maybe in Halloween, maybe in Friday the 13th, but weirdly it is. These people using TikTok and fucking Google Drive and all of this stuff doesn't make sense in this fucking film. The, the, the best metaphor for this film is, is dog shit on your shoe. And then the last scene is walking in the house before you realise there's dog shit. Yeah, exactly. It's that last scene you're like, it's, oh my God. It's, it's putting your shoes on your bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not realising. Yeah. It's like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's got your usual horror cat and mouse stuff, you know, and, and that's way more interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, give me a Texas Chainsaw Massacre where the film starts where you, you are, you've woke up and you are on one of the hooks in his basement and you look to the left and that person's gone and you have to get down from that hook and get out of that house. That's terrifying. That's the, you know, the floorboard creaking, um, you know, hiding in wardrobe stuff that would terrify you. And, but this, it's like, there he is. Look at how vicious he looks and how, you know, look, he's already killed four people 10 minutes into this film. It, it, it's just, there is also a really laughable, there's a, what should be a really good scene in a dead sunflower field 
which should be really good, just looks fucking funny when he pops up with a skin mask on and you're like, that's not terrifying. That is stupid. <laughs> I, you know, but don't get me wrong. I know plenty of people that it will eat this film up and be like, it's fucking brutal and brilliant. And that's all I wanted in a yeah. one hour, 20 movie. And um, I just, it's a shame because it's, it's building on the legacy or it's claiming to build on the legacy of what I think is one of the greatest horror movies. So it's got the usual, why don't people leave town? Why, how does the mask stay on? That mask must stink as well. You always mention that, don't you? You say it's up there with the house that Jack built. That fucking smell. That house would have stunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need a face mask, mate. Do you think you ever... <laughs> yeah, get over, just put some, some aloe vera and charcoal face mask. Do you, do you think he ever does get home though and just takes the mask off and like hangs up the, you know, he just he's like stretches. Wife's like, you're right, it's a long one today. <laughs> I just, think, I just think he looks himself in the mirror and just goes, what happened? What happened? Where did, where did it like, go wrong? Why am I still doing the same shit? 15 years yeah. later, I feel like I've got no progression. Gets, gets a phone call from Freddy. It's just like, <laughs> been rebooted three times. Yeah. I, I, I want to see that movie. I want to see, I want to see Leatherface in space. Obviously. I want to see Jason X, but the Leatherface version. Because if you're going to be stupid, go for it. Yeah. Jason X did that. Oh. <laughs> no one ever looked back at the greatest franchise. I think the problem is, is like I said, there's just no, there's no terror in it. There's no fear. No. It's just silly. I mean, there is. I mean, because any film that's quite, quite bang is going to make people jump. I'll never understood this. Just like I'll never understand. So Mike Myers gets away with it. So does Freddie. But you know, Jason and Leatherface, mm. they're not, they're not, they literally walk. They see someone, they walk straight towards them and kill him. Just stand out in the middle of a field. And then when you see when they're coming, walk in the opposite direction, get mm. in a car, drive away. They're not... To me, it always comes through the don't go in the shit house with the you know, don't go there. If it looks like a serial killer might live mm. in there, don't go in there. Maybe don't buy a fucking city <laughs> or town, whatever that all of this, mate, and that's still a bit I don't believe. It's like, how did you get that? Where's your finance from? They tried to give one of the sisters a backstory. That's that's but and so I can't spoil this. They give some of the characters a backstory, which which you basically they basically shine a light in it and go this will come up later, pay attention. Everything that you need to know later happened and it's so framed, it's like, don't worry about it, you won't forget about it. You, you just need to know this. It's paint by the numbers and it's, it's fucking read to you. It's book on tape. It's, you don't have to think about this film at all. And sometimes, and do you know what, you, like you said, it's, it's an hour and a half. It's a horror film. Mm. Some people like that and that's fine. Not for me though. I, I didn't like this film at all. I thought it, I liked the last 10 minutes, mate, because it was so over until I was fucking, it was one of my favourite moments. Yeah, it is gory as fuck, like some of them scenes. I, I wish there was a scene though, like straight after that first movie, straight after it, the two cops sat there, much younger. Should I go check out the orphanage? Because I hear there's a big smelly guy there. <laughs> no, no, leave it. No. That's bad to be nothing. It's like, no, go to cinema though. <laughs> it was closing down soon. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> oh man. Will I watch it again? No. <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> agree with you no I can't believe you know you ne- only, Netflix is a good home for it though the, the only thing you say is do you want to watch do you want to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre you'll have to ask which one because if it's the original maybe but that's it yeah I, I can't remember much of the others I just remember that um, the uh, the one with Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey in it I do not remember that one do you not see that that's the third one isn't it I don't know I think that's the return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's the one that came out in 94. It was just before uh, he did 
Matthew Conaghy did Time to Kill. I you, did not know that at all. Yeah, Conaghy's one of the uh, one of the family. She, and Renny Zellweger's Leatherface, so it twi- twists on her head. So the front cover is no, the front cover is her with the with with a much more like masquerade looking leather oh, it's skin just, face. It's just the eye skins. Yeah, yeah, it's more seductive. <laughs> it's just the eye skins, <laughs> yeah. not the full. Skins. But she fucked up the cheeks, so she's like, I'll just have to use the oh. the upper part. It's like Batman's cowl, but just made of skin. <laughs> That'd be fucking metal as fuck. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Just, I, I, I'll be honest, I never thought you and I would mention skin so much. Well, the second one had Dennis Hopper in it. That makes sense. I, for, I can yeah. see that, though. <laughs> that yeah. doesn't surprise me. Yeah, they have... They, they, yeah. I'm just remembering different scenes of this film now. Move on. I'll move on. <laughs> move on, mate. Uh, I think that's me done, film for film. That's oh, my four. That was my five. So we're going to do Martin Scorsese then. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> What were we just talking about skin? Yeah, Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. He's an American uh, award-winning director, producer, and screenwriter with 68 films under his belt. His career took off in 1973 with Mean Streets, did do a, a series of shorts and other films before that, but Mean Streets was really the one that put him on the radar of um, other filmmakers and cinema goers. And he would go on to direct some of cinema's biggest and best, from Taxi Driver to Raging Bull, King of Comedy, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino, Gangs of New York, Avatar, The Departed, Shutter Island, Hugo, Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, and The Irishman. So pretty much De Niro, De Niro, De Niro, De Niro, De Niro. Yeah. DiCaprio, 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 back to De Niro. Yeah. That's the filmography. Just just, just at the end there. Um, Scorsese's trademarks include gangster dramas, New York backdrops, snappy dialogue, and a blend of quick edits and long paced out tracking shots. Scorsese is a longtime collaborator with Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Harvey Keitel. And since the early 2000s, has adopted Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like a surrogate film son. Mm. Scorsese's films follow the vigilantes, those that are on the downward spiral, those on the wrong side of the law, um, and th- but always those with a high moral code. Often pushing the 18R rating, Scorsese's familiar with just about every swear word under the, uh, under the sun. And often his films depict graphic, intense, real-life violence. Scorsese often uh, draws from real-life characters and events, taking inspiration from novels and autobiographies. Uh, and although someone, although he's someone that's used digital cameras, 3Ds, visual effects, and de-aging technology, he much prefers classic filmmaking, recording on film with big sets, props, and practical effects where possible. As a filmmaker, he's grossed over two billion at the box office, and his top three great grossing movies in order are The Departed, Shutter Island, and Wolf of Wall Street being number one. Yeah, they're all the latest ones, though. <clears throat> yeah, we're not accounting for inflation yeah, of exactly. Um, so, sorry, my seat is going to ask the question that every film goer asks at some point when they're drunk at the bar or around the table. What is your favourite Martin Scorsese movie? Do you know what? Maybe it's the one that's coming out this year. So you've got the two genres of Martin, the two generations of Martin Scorsese. Well, in 2022, Killers of the Moon will star Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. This film has been on the cards for years. And also Jesse Plymouth. I love the fact that Jesse Plymouth is just like Jesse in Plymouth there now. fucking owning it. Like he's, he, he has pulled off some great characters, has been in some great shows, small screen and big screen. Yep. I mean, you, you, I know you're a big fan of Power of the Dog. You know, Breaking Bad, he made like a big, Big uh, kind of impression on in Fargo the TV series. Fargo, series, yeah, series is one of my favorite series. Every time he pops it out and something, I'm like, fucking, oh, he's good, isn't he? He's good. He's good. He Soon. breaks the mold of Hollywood as I'm well. Just saying, maybe he's done. Maybe Scarsese's he's done with uh, done with Leo, and he's like, give me some of that Plymouth. You're not done with Leo, mate. <laughs> Un- unless unless you're a woman and you go over the age of 25, you're not done with Leo. <laughs> Leo's done with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Mean Streets. I remember seeing this film. I remember being blown away by Harvey Cartel, a really young Robert De Niro. Thing, I think it was one of the first DVDs I bought because it yeah. was such a w- cool cover. This was Scorsese's like his dark period, and I love Scorsese's use of lighting in film. So I always think he uses the same cinematography and f- uh, photographer in his basements as like Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. You can use all of these films, and they're always like dark, dank. We always talk about Gotham being like just liquid everywhere. Mm. <laughs> it's just such a damp place. Scorsese's is there's rubbish in the wind. You know, there's a newspaper that goes across the black sedan car. Mean Streets for me was a perfect introduction into the world, the kind of worlds he can build. I, I love Mean Streets. I liked Mean Streets. I did. I was probably too young to appreciate it. I think Taxi Driver was the first impressionable. And if you see Mean Streets, Taxi Driver is not, not leaps no, and bounds away from it. Um, Taxi Driver for me was the first film that I remember seeing that was of that time, of a film that boils down to the third act and in particular the final scenes. Taxi Driver is one of them movies that is a pot that's simmering, simmering, and then it overflows. And I remember watching that and thinking, fucking hell, that's a really, really good movie. Iconic movie. It is iconic. There's a big movement as well, the outsider, the one that doesn't belong. He's trying to take charge of his own destiny. You know, he's a taxi driver. He's unhinged. He makes the decision to kill, like, a senator to make the... You know, there's all those people talking about, at the end, is it real? Is it true? You know, does mm. it? what does it mean? And I love that. But it's also the Vietnam vet angle Vietnam as well. Vietnam vet and that type of thing. You know, lost belligerent, if you will. So what I think really Taxi Driver does is it, it alienates its main character. And done expertly as well. It's like, and there's something that will go on throughout. They're not a nice person. Mm. You know, they're not a nice person. And whilst he is courage of his own, you know, convictions, he's still not a good person. Travis Bickle isn't someone that we should look up to. Travis you know? Bickle, yeah. he's <clears throat> Yeah, he's, you're right. In all the gangster movies, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to connect with these characters. Yeah, exactly. They're not anti-heroes. You're not really supposed to root for him. Uh, and then I think, I remember I remember this film, it stuck out to me because it was black and white, but I think Raging Bull, where um, Jake Lamott is based on his memoirs to his boxing career, I think might be some of the best film work ever done. You get those story of Robert De Niro putting on all those pounds and you see him and he's like this huge monstrosity. I'm having a go at the man, but he looks so different from the film, you know, taking that craft to the next level. Mike mm. Scorsese lying him. Great use of black and white as well um, when you're telling this memoir story. And you've got, I'm going to say now, this is one of the films that Joe Pesci, you know, where people remember him from Home Alone, he's phenomenal in Ranging Ball. He's, 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 I would say he's better actor than Robert De Niro in this film. He, he Well, he, he has to, doesn't he? He has to have the range. He has to have mm. the good, the bad, which is really weird because when you see Pesci in like Goodfellas, you know, this... He he's the person that you you are more related to because um, the main character, sorry, it's Jake, isn't it? Yeah, Jake Lamada, and he, he's so unlikable and aggressive and violent and violent in the ring and in his personal life. If you're going to attach to anyone, it's the brother who's got his interests at heart, but has, has his own agenda as well. And also, that's casting an unknown at the time. Joe Pesci not in a lot, and you think of you know that's another trait of Scorsese. You know, working with. Um, Oh, bloody, I forgot a bloody name now. Margot oh. Robbie, yeah, in oh. Wolf of Wall Street and casting unknowns in big roles as well. Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. I was going to say Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. She, she must have only done Bugsy Malone before that. Or maybe is, it, after. is it pretty? Because if you've just done, if you've just done Bugsy Malone, like what are you doing next? In like, all the Taxi other, Driver. All, all, the, all the other guys are like, uh, go about school. <laughs> like, I'm doing the Kellogg's advert. <laughs> yeah, I've, I play like a 30 year old I've robbed an All right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, a film that I find doesn't get enough credit, you might have noticed we're doing this chronologically, and The King of Comedy. And 
I really like this because Jerry Lewis, I never really understood Jewish, uh, Jerry Lewis because obviously big American comedian. I think um, Robert De Niro here is so good that when you watch the film Joker now, you get that flip. You see, oh my God, that was Robert De Niro, what he was doing in King Comedy. It's, it's a really good story. Like, I think it was different as well. You know, he kidnaps his idol, basically holds them hostage. Like, you've got to give me some time. The audience connects with him. Mm. He tells them, oh, I'm only here because I've kidnapped Jerry Lewis. They think it's part of the joke. Goes to jail, comes back, and he's a superstar. I think now that story is more relevant nowadays. Now, I think you could genuinely make that. Mm. King of Comedy is a film that you could easily remake. I know a but, lot of people hate it, but you would, and De Niro would play the idol. Would yeah, play the, would play the legend, and you'd have someone like Zac Efron. You know, it's an, an Zac point. Efron. It is, it is. But no, I, I think. But you've hit the nail on the head. You look at talking about him being an influential filmmaker. It was no secret at the time. But Joker is very heavily influenced on King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Mm. You know, they're, they're too, um, you take out Gotham, you put New York in, you take out De Niro, you put in Joaquin Phoenix. The, the parallels are, are pretty uh, consistent. William Defoe, is he your favourite Jesus? I think he's one of my favourite Jesus. Obviously, he's up there with uh, the big Jim, man himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird one. I don't think I've ever seen it. I know that he spent ages trying to make this film. Like, I'm sure he was making films like After Hours so he could make this one. Yes, yeah, Passion Project, as was The Silence, was it, or Silence, the Adam Driver, Andrew Garfield, Liam Neeson. I haven't seen it. I want to see it. I haven't Mate, seen Silence. I watched that at like 6 a.m. Yeah, you've t- that's, I think you, you're the one that's told me, which is why I've- I watched it just after I watched The House That Jack Built. <laughs> what fucking weird weekend you I know, had. I know, I got up, I watched that, that the Lars von Trier horror film that is uh, The House That Jack Built, and then thought, oh, now I want to watch a three-hour crusade movie. <laughs> About Adam Driver and uh, and Andrew Garfield going over to Japan to try and find their mentor, who's Liam Neeson, who's trying to spread the good word of Jesus in a country and in a uh, environment where they don't want Western religions. What, what I find is I know that uh, Nielsen wouldn't be like, you know, like, what oh, shall I tell you about Christ? I'll tell you about Christ. As, he, like, <laughs> as he's, he's coshing his way through <laughs> Japan. It's like, let me tell you. <laughs> Nielsen 360. <laughs> Mate, that's a film. It is a film. I'd watch that. Unfortunately, I get the funny feeling that Silence wasn't that. No, Silence is a is a very long film. I mean, it's it's a film as well that like um, Garfield and Driver excel in, mm. but they excel in a way that's like. I wish you could excel at something better. It's it, you've got to put the hours in to get where you get into in that film. I see. Up until this week, I know, the film that I didn't realize Mike Scorsese did was The Color of Money. Yeah. I didn't know That's that sequel was... sequel as well, isn't it? Yeah, so... The only se- is it one of the only sequels he's done? Yeah, it must be. Oh, was he in... Was he in Shark's Tale 2? Well, he, no, well, he's an actor in that. <laughs> and you already know because that fish has big bushy eyebrows. <laughs> one of the best directors of all time. He's like, how do we make him... How do we get him to let people know his mind? Give him the biggest fucking eyebrows you can. Yeah. <sighs> is, honestly, in, in regards to the eyebrow game, it's Carla Delevingne, yep. U- Eugene Levy... Yeah, and Scorsese on the top three. That's what we need. Um, he in quite possibly his period, the nineties, mate. The nineties is when he came big. I know you, you've, you've got a complex relationship with Goodfellas. To me, Goodfellas yeah. is one of the. Oh, when I was at the cinema, they're re-releasing um, Godfather. Um, that's coming out. That was the trailer when I was watching the Duke. It's coming out for its fifty-year anniversary. I think it's coming oh, back right. onto the big screen. So date, go, I'll go watch that. Yeah, because the, the TV series is coming out soon as well. Oh, is it? Oh, cool. He just said mm. Universal. It's bringing out the first one, not part two. But I assume if part one goes well, mm. anyway, I'm one of those people. But I think as gangster film goes, I think Goodfellas is better because you you're more invested in them because they're more entry level. 
I love Goodfellas. I know you love Cape Fear. I do love Cape Fear. Cape Fear's, again, great film, underrated. I Is it Max Cassidy? Juliet Lewis is great in that movie, and it's got uh, Nick Naughty. I know, can't win them all. <laughs> well, it's Nick Naughty before he became Nick Naughty, you know. They, <laughs> when he was Mr. Naughty. <laughs> yeah, just Nick Naughty. When, when you see him foraging in the in the wilderness in the third uh, Fallen movie with Gerald Butler. <sighs> You've seen it. I, I genuinely think that they just caught a, a, a wild Nick Naughty and was what, like, keep the cameras going. That's what I said. I was like, I'm fairly certain they didn't know he was there. It was supposed to like, right, Gerald, we want you to be like, just, you know, think to yourself. And Nick Naughty just came on and started yeah. talking to him. was like, oh, okay. He just started shouting at him. He was like, you're my son. Go with it, Gerald. Go with it. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> you're my son. It's just like, yeah. Right. <laughs> Gerald, pretend. We'll write this into the movie. So, I mean, The Age of Innocence and Receive, but I tell you one film I did see, and I think it's an underrated classic, despite the fact it's got everyone's favourite scumbag, James Wilson, Casino. Yeah, I absolutely love Casino. Again, I do, brutal. I think if you don't like Goodfellas, you're not going to like Casino, but I think purely because it's the same kind of violence in Goodfellas, is, Casino is a much more violent film, mm. longer film, but you do, you're full on the horribleness side because Henry Hill and Goodfellas, uh, Ray Liotta, he's kind of, he's in between, he does horrible things, but he's not the most horrible character. Yeah. In Casino, you spend your time with Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and they both do horrific things throughout the entire film. So there is that kind of brutality is more commonplace in Casino. Um, Bringing Out the Dead is one of my favourite underrated films of all time. Yeah, I like that film. Bringing Out the Dead, so Nicolas Cage, is, he's on a, what you call a losing streak, he's a paramedic and everyone keeps dying. He hasn't saved anyone in ages. And there's one person he saves and he spends time with the daughter, which is an Arquette. Patricia Arquette, I think. Anyway, and he, he's got different, he's got Tom Sizemore. Mm. He's got Ving Rames. He's got different partners. And throughout the night, it's basically about him surviving and how he's losing his mind. And I love the fact that the end of that film ends with him going to sleep because he's not been able to sleep. And he doesn't, I mean, spoilers, it's a 99 film, but he basically uncurses himself by killing the only person he saved in like a week. And it kind of like releases him because it releases the uh, Patricia Arquette from caring about a father who won't let go. So it's such an amazing film. It's so well-rounded. And it's like, I think they get called angels in it. And uh, Nicholas Cage's character gets really gets him down. It's like, we're not angels. We're barely living. We show up and we are just surviving. I find it's really, I'll be honest, I think bringing out dead and it's on there. It's my number three. And it's odd that then he went on to Gone in 60 Seconds the year later, and that, that was a huge hit. Yeah. Well, Bringing Out the Dead for me is one of his best films because it's, he's up there when he won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas. This, to me, Bringing Out the Dead is Nicholas Cage's one of his best performances. Mm. And Scott Sazy fucking really brought him out of that because, like you say, Nicholas Cage was at his, Nicholas Cage in the late nights was at his highest, but this he wasn't doing his best work. But I would say Bringing Out the Dead is up there with the time we've done. I don't know, Conair, mate. Conair and... I do, you see these, but I do love those films. <laughs> just saying, I just don't think they're his best. Um, and then and then he disappeared for... I thought, someone told me he disappeared for years. But in the end, he only disappeared for like three or four years when he brought out Gangs of New York. Which is probably to film that, because that's a big <laughs> monumental task. That's a big task. film. <laughs> yeah. Ironically as well. So here's a fun fact for you, James. Okay. This is why people download this, episode, this podcast. For useless facts like this... You'll see I've got no notes in front of me. Okay. But I, I knew this from a uh, trivia question years ago, and it's one that always stuck with me. Scorsese's done 10 movies set in New York, where he's usually like New York. Apart from the movie, Gangs of New York, where he filmed it all in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> That's odd, isn't it? That is proper odd. Uh, I like to think Daniel Day-Lewis had something to do with that. He's like, yes, I'll be in this film, but I'm cobbling in Rome, <laughs> so you must bring the whole set to me. 
Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I don't like gangs in New York. I, and my problem is it builds up the whole film, which is a long film as well. It builds up to a fight. Everyone's like, oh, "God, there's gonna be a fight. There's a fight. There's a fight." The fight doesn't happen, and I know the film might be greatly acted and everything, but do not promise me for two and a half hours an epic fight, and do not deliver that fight. Fuck off. <laughs> but that's what I like about Scorsese is like the realism of it. Like. Mm. It, a no, lot, I get that, a lot of Scorsese is like someone drawing a gun and shooting them before they have time to react. Mm. You know, and, and I, I saw Gangs New York once and it, it, for me at the time, I mean, this is the early 2000s, like I, I wasn't really, I, I just probably still aren't into like overly bloody movies. And I just remember a lot of snow and a lot of blood. But I do keep wanting to go back to it for Daniel Day-Lewis, for Leonardo DiCaprio, Liam Neeson. There's, There's loads of people in this movie that I'm like, I forgot all these people are in it. I'm sure Daniel Day-Lewis gives a... He's got an American flag and he's bleeding or something. He's giving a speech while Leonardo DiCaprio is asleep and he's talking about his dad because at mm. the time he does know his dad. He's like, I've only ever killed one person I respected. And that scene to me was one of the best scene. When I saw this film, I was like, this must be the best film in cinema history. Mm. But Daniel Day-Lewis is on the next level. Like, he is on his own. Well, no. Michael Shannon. Shannon's up there, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do remember Gangs of New York was a letdown for me. I was a bit disappointed, but... But then the Aviator a few years later, I, that was when when I started opening my eyes to Leo. So like, mine's the way around. I didn't like the Aviator. Oh, I liked Leo and the Aviator. I, I'll be honest. It's one of those films that I don't really remember that much, but I do remember lead role, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, he's got it. Mm. What I don't like about the Aviator? Um, I, it's just I didn't like it. I think, again, it's that time. It's that early 2000s, the effects I went too much into. I didn't... I didn't go into that movie. I remember seeing it in the cinema and thinking the subject matter is not something that I'm really sold into as well. Um, it was all right. It was okay. It was, you know, it's like, but uh, shock horror. It's the same as Wolf of Wall Street. I could take that movie or I could take it or leave it. Mm. I like what Wolf of Wall Street has become in the sense that you get all the like Matthew McConaughey memes, you get all the Jonah Hill memes and stuff like yeah. that. And that I have fonder memories of when people pop them uh, memes up on timelines than I did actually watching the movie. Makes sense. Next one's a big one for me, Departed. I would say another great gangster film. Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon. But let's be honest, those two were brilliant in it. And Matt Damon we had this career, you know, branching away from his partnership with Ben Affleck, you know, really starting to get main character, really starting to get really good. I think he'd already done the Bourne series, so he was already a leading man, but different. Mm. He, had a, he had a lot of personality about him, was kind of a dick. Him seducing that... Vera Farmiger. Vera Farmiger. Great banter between them. Yeah. The problem is, it's not a problem, is you're going to be overshadowed when Jack Nicholson is fucking on fire mm. in one of his last great performances. Like, yeah, he was next up. Like that, I always remember the bit where they're talking about rats. So he's talking, they're talking about rats with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonesy. Yeah, Ray Winston. <laughs> Ray Winston. And he's just, you see him in his ear going, <laughs> yeah. It's just, he's so over the top. And apparently, Mike Scott says he just wanted to work with Jack Nicholson. He was just wanted to work with it. And this is a remake of a Hong Kong thriller, Internal Affairs. Internal Affairs, yeah. Everyone yeah. wanted a sequel to this film. It talk about brutal ending when everyone just starts dying. It's even got James Badge Dale, mate. And that means nothing to no one, but he was in 24 Series 3, played Chase. There you go. Um, absolutely great film. I love this film. It's over the top, but also at the same time quite muted. The storyline is very good. I know it's because it's a remake of another film, but it did his own spin on it, like the Boston Irish cop thing. There's loads of great speeches that don't go anywhere, soliloquies that you're not quite sure what they mean. Um, there's a big thing about homophobia in there as well, implying that some of the characters, you know, might have extra layers to them. Alec Baldwin, and you don't get this often, mate. You get a good performance from Mark Wahlberg. That is true. Very rare. Very rare. And he's only in it for three scenes, but he knew what he was getting with Mark Wahlberg. He was like, I don't want to overstimulate you, Mark. I'm going to give you three scenes. Yeah. <laughs> and that is it. 
it's also weird, isn't it, that it took 30 years and numerous awards to get Jack Nicholson. And it's even weirder to think it took 40 years to get uh, Al Pacino with the Irishman. Yeah. That, that's the one that surprised me the yeah. most. Because you would have thought that they worked together previously with all the gangster movies, you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But no. Yeah, Departed. It, also, this, the Scorsese thing, in three movies with Scorsese, there's the person walking in a room and noticing the plastic all over the floor before they get shot. And it's a it's a it's a thing that happens in Scorsese movies all the time. That always <laughs> just he's grim, isn't it? It's like a horrible because you, the audience, figure it out at the same time. Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, all right, this maybe not just plastic, but you get it when he walks in the house and there's no one there. Yeah, um, you know, and the, and the same with this with the end scene with Matt Damon. And, walks in uh, there. Yeah. yeah, it's that that's the thing, isn't it? And Scorsese as well. Fucking out, there was there were twists in the Departed, the big one being Leo in it, where I think no one saw that coming. Like, wow. Yeah. Wow. What a great film. I love The Departed. What I liked as well about The Departed as well is there's a, a scene that a lot of people forget is the bit when, and I can never remember his name, but, and he's got a real thick Scottish, I don't know if Scottish or I, I think Scottish, and there's an actor in it, and as he's died, he's been shot, he says to Leo, I know you're a cop. Yeah, he's like, I told you the wrong building by mistake. Yeah. But you were at the right building. But and it, but it also implies that maybe he was a rat as well. Mm. I really, that was really... It's Mike Sheen as well, isn't it? Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen's in that as well because he's the cop he that is, gets thrown the, off the end. Yeah. yeah that's, to you what, as your staff, as your staff, I keep saying that, Castless Ghost, that's probably the best, one of the best casts he's worked with. Yeah. Um, Shore Island, I wasn't a huge fan of, but that's because I guessed it. I guessed it quite early on and someone told me and I, and I didn't see the cinema. I think I saw it was on normal TV and I went, does this happen? Someone said yes. And then when you know how it's going to happen, you, your head turns off. He's like, why would I watch this? I've already guessed it. So it's a film a lot like The Sixth Sense, which should have resonated more with me, but because I guessed the end or I told the end or someone told me it, I never could get into it. You need you need to go into it not knowing the twist yeah. to, to really thoroughly enjoy it. I like that film. I like a good old-fashioned ghost story. I, I like the, the fact that the second time you watch it, you get a completely different perspective of it. Mm. I like the creepiness. I like the setting of it, the asylum setting of it. To me, I I really I was surprised that it's the second biggest grosser movie. But this again is one of them films that was at the start of that, you know, um, thriller horror kind yes. of push that came out, and everyone starts saying, you know, and um, you know, you had all the movies like. Um, Oh, hide and seek and you know and, and just all the kind of films that came out around this well, I was time. Well, say 2010 Identity wasn't that far before this film. That's very similar. Yeah, I for me Short Island was really good and, and I like Mark Ruffalo in it. I like the ending as well. I like yeah. that at the end he it, it works. Choice, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and at the end he's like would you rather live with yourself as a hero or die? would you rather die as a hero or or live as a monster? And because he's he's, he's got the he's going to be um, the bottomizer, isn't he? Yeah. And um and it proves that it worked. The, the thing worked, but you can't live with knowing the truth. And I thought, that's such a dark ending as well. Yeah, it was. That was it, Like I said, I need to go watch that. I haven't seen it for about 10 years. I know, hopefully I can enjoy it, but mm. that day I couldn't enjoy it. Um, I haven't seen the signs. The Wolf of Wall Street, I really like, except for the film's overly long, but I really do like the supporting characters. I like Matthew McConaughey. I love Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill really shows you something in this film. Like this in Moneyball, or Jonah Hill, that's where he belongs, not, you know, fart jokes and stuff like that. But the film is so long and it's unnecessarily long. It's, the film must be pushing like two and a half hours, two, three quarters. It, to me, it's too long. I, you can tell a story more succinctly than that. I don't need to see John Bethanor selling a pen, that type of thing. There's so much to that film, there's too much. 
not for me. And no, don't get me wrong, I do like the film, just a bit too much. And then I haven't seen The Science. And then The Irishman, which we've talked about at length in an episode before, using about time you've got four great actors in there. You've got Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Harvey Cartel, Joe Pesci. Mm. Just because you can make someone look 50 years younger, you can't make them... And one of the most standout scenes is Robert De Niro in his very aged body trying to beat someone up and it looks bad. Like Samuel Jackson running away from aliens in Captain Marvel. But just, yeah. you can't change movements. You can't, yeah, you can't change that he's 70 in that movie. Yeah. And, you, and you can't, yeah, it's the same with Al Pacino when he has to get out of a chair looking 40 and he's getting out of the chair as a 70-year-old. So, right. My third one is bringing out the dead for reasons that I explained. I just think it's next level. I think it's brilliant. Agree. I, I That's think my third. My number two. Now this is there's going to be a lot of people are going to be disappointed. They're going to hit it, and that's fine. And I know this isn't in your top two. Goodfellas to me is one of the near perfect genre of films. I really like it. I like all the characters in it. I love the writing. Everything. Everything's pulled together. So Mike Scorsese has to get credit for bringing that film together because I highly rate Goodfellas so much that I have no choice but to really put it as two. Although there are two other films that missed out, but that's why I put it. I put Goodfellas for me as number two, and I know that's something you might not disagree with, or you might agree with, but you that that film came to you at a different part of your time. Mm. And you haven't really done a top three, so you might not have a number I've, two. I've got a top three. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. What's your number two then? A taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Yeah, the, the alienated youth. I, I think for Travis Bickle as a character, Robert Deere's performance, the pacing of that movie... I really miss movies that are, that are told over those three acts. That in the, in the third act, that that's where the violence is. If your film needs violence, you know. Yeah. Um, and it is Travis Bickle is. There are certain characters in films that are so believable, and and you know whether they be psychopaths, sociopaths, or whatever it is. And Travis Bickle's one. I always compare tra- the nearest to that is Jake Gyllenhaal's Lewis Bloom in Nightcrawler as a person that I thoroughly believe that dude is walking around the streets and doing what he's doing. And yeah, um, I, yeah I'm, and try, and also it takes you up as a bit of a personal one. I just remember watching it as a kid as someone who's really just not, I mean, I've always loved film, but starting to like, like pay attention to film. Yeah. And Taxi Driver was, I remember getting it and being like, this is an important movie. This is a film that a lot of people respect and adore and, you know, changed um, the landscape of filmmaking and watching it with that kind of, I suppose kind of set up to watching it. I think Taxi Driver is my number two. That is a good, it's a strong number two. Mm. My number one, you, there are moments in your time when you watch film and you, you realise anything is possible, any emotion you can feel, usually at a young age when you're, oh my God, the magic of the cinema, the magic of film. So I didn't see this film in the cinema, I didn't see this film, any special. I bought the DVD because I liked the Rocky franchise. I loved Rocky. I Googled for films about boxing and Raging Bull came up. And I put that DVD and you watch... As the titles roll, I'm sure you see someone shadow boxing very slowly in a ring, and then you see a very overweight Robert De Niro practicing mm. comedy lines. And throughout the next hour, two hours, the story it tells is graphic, it's jarring, it's horrible, but it's real, it's visceral. You've got standout performances from Joe Pesci, who I knew at the time as a Home Alone guy. Robert De Niro's face is like morphed throughout the entire film. My cousin Vinny, mate. My, oh, I stand corrected. <laughs> My cousin Vinny. But what I saw was a film that was worthy of the title, one of the best films I've ever seen. Raging Bull was a phenomenal when I watched it for the first time. Shook me to my core. The villain, uh, the villain was the hero, and the brother had his back, but didn't because he slept with his wife. But also they had an argument, and at the end they kind of talk. But then you find out that Jake Lamotta, the character that you follow throughout, does despicable things, and that's why he's in jail at the end. What a story about ego in the world of like professional boxing. The story captivated me. And as soon as we decided we were doing Moscow, it was like, well, at some point I'm going to talk about 
Raging Bull and the knock-on effect from the poster, the black and white silhouette of the boxing with the red, white, and Raging Bull. Raging Bull, the term itself, the name they give mm. Jake Lamotta, it's completely off his face. You know, he, at any moment, he could smash out. You know, he has a horrible relationship with his wife. What a film. And the film is designed to make you feel things and Raging Bull, Martin Scorsese's Piesta de Resistance to me, number one film. Agree. Hey, Man of one. It's got to be, it's got to be Raging Bull. I think Raging the, Bull. the moment we said Scorsese, I think Raging Bull was the, the first one. film that came yeah. to mind. Two two and three is always a toss-up. I, I think bringing out the dead because, it, I don't know about you, anytime you do a top three, you always want to put a wild card you in there. You do want to put a wild card. You don't want to go for the fate. You don't want to go for the classics, the ones that everyone goes for. I think, yeah. I think bringing out the dead is also one to encourage people to watch it. Two could have been a toss-up. I think on any given day, it could have been The Departed. Yeah. I would have liked to put Shutter Island in there, but I know it's not. He's, he's not even in the top five of his best films. I may have liked the subject matter in the, yeah. in the tone, but, you know, and I'm not I'm not overly into my gangster films. Goodfellas, I, you know, Casino, great, but I'd rather watch Cape Fears and those kind yeah. of films. They're, you know, the taxi drivers, they're the ones that I like. I'm, I'm not a big mafia guy. I know you're not. But that's but that's but I think mafia films were so when you grow up, there's always a film that in your informative years gets done to death. Mm. Ours was mob films. Yeah. Whereas growing up now, it might be superhero films. So in a few years, you you you're all your childhood. Oh, I just want something different. I want to see a western. You so our parents westerns, which is why they died out. They grew up in western films, and now you don't see that many western films now. Mm. Don't see many mob films now because our generation grew up with them. So I'm saying in like 40 years, there might be less superhero films because they grew up on them. You just get tired of them. You want something different, something new. But no, I can understand that. Um, outside of shots, The Departed would have been amazing. And King of Comedy. I, King, uh, the King of Comedy to me is fucking brilliant. Well, that's our show. So let us know what your favourite Martin Scorsese movie is or your top three. Also, let us know what, who your favourite fictional president is. Obviously. And if you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, do not forget to write in and let us know what you thought of it. Uh, how many chainsaws out of 10 would you give it? <laughs> Beckett is certainly a film that I'd recommend watching this week on Netflix. It's a great uh, under two hour, um, well-paced thriller. And James says, obviously, avoid the fortress. Avoid the fortress. But if you've got a spare ticket and a spare afternoon, do you like murder mysteries and you like Agatha Christie, give Death on an, Death on our trial. And if you've got a spare afternoon or evening, do yourself a favour. Check out Jim Broadbent and Hannah Moran in the fantastic, the very British, The Duke. There you go. There's your, uh, there's your orders for this week. If I don't see you later, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Goodbye.